Before I hit record for this interview, I was thinking about going back and changing something in the main body of the episode. It was a mistake in the interview where I had picked a word of the day but hadn't even really thought about it beforehand. The word of the day was Jiu Ling Ho, so like the 90s generation, 90s kids. But I had not reached into my vocabulary memory banks about how to actually pronounce that because it's usually written as, you know, 90 Ho. So I say, I see 90 and I think Jiu Shu as in like how you would normally say 90. The reason I made this mistake is my Chinese is really not that great and I never really used that term in my conversations living in China because I hadn't learned it and if I hadn't learned the things I wasn't using them. So that's a, a term I learned after coming back home and I goofed it and I thought I'd flag it here. Um, I'm also mentioning this because it is a bit of a bridge to talk about the story but going back in, uh, well, well in the story's case time, going back in time to fix something that's the that's the climax of the story for this episode, which is Farewell Dorimon by Atra. And sorry for just spoiling, spoiling the ending there right off the bat. I hope you'll forgive me. I will not tell you any more about the story just now. I'll save that for the interview itself uh, with Eero Swaranta, who's going to be talking to me or has already spoken to me about this story. But I'm playing with time here because although I did the interview in the past, you're not listening to it yet. That interview is in your future, so to speak. Uh, I'll, I'll stop messing about with uh, words and go so to something a bit more serious, the Trichofic News, the translated Chinese fiction news. Uh, by the way, if you hear birds or trains or planes in the background, it's because I left the windows open uh, for this recording. I just, I just thought it would be fun and also it's pretty warm and I don't want my computer to melt. So yeah, if, if, if you're a new listener, by the way, uh, the house I live in is right by both the Manchester-Chester railway line. And it's also right, oh yeah, there's a plane. I can hear one in the background. Maybe it'll show up on the mic. Uh, we're right under the flight path for at least some of the flights coming out of Manchester airport. We're not far south. I'm sure that's I'm sure that's coming through the mic. Uh, we're not we're not uh, far south of runway two, I think it is. Anyway, uh, yes, the first news item. So this is something you can read. It's a very short book review of Cocoon by Zhang Yuaran, and this is a Jeremy Tiang translation. Uh, I've not read this book. I've not even read the review, but I thought I would link to it for you, uh, if only because the cover is an absolutely beautiful cover and. There is a little quote on the front by none other than Francis Waitman, one half of the Leeds Center for New Chinese Writing. So all, all sorts of good reasons to read this book, not, not least that it comes at Francis's recommendation. So yeah, that's our first news item, really simple one. Now the next one, uh, this is a little trick that I've done before where I just go into YouTube, I type in Chinese literature, and I look for long-ish videos that have recently gone live because uh, you often get academic centers and universities and whatnot putting up uh, lectures, basically. So that, that, here's what we've got. This one went up on the 9th of May, uh, uploaded by the China Study Center. And it's a talk by Dr. Will Gatherer, who's talking about his recently published work. Uh, I'm not sure if it's a book or an essay or his doctoral thesis, but in any way, in any case, it's called Ma Yuan, The Chinese Avant-Garde, Metafiction, and Post-Postmodernism. My goodness. <laughs> uh, so yeah, he, he talks all about this, the work of this uh, writer, Ma Yuan, who uh, does have some works in translation out, but I've 
barely encountered, I believe, and who has not been the subject of uh, of this show. So yeah, that is up there on YouTube. It's 48 minutes long, and it's there for your enjoyment. I, I picked this one partly because, you know, it recently went up, but also because, like, postmodernism, metafiction, self-reference, uh, that that is a partial description of the direction that my conversation with Aero in the interview you're about to hear took. So I, I thought it was somewhat relevant. Also, the sort of 80s, 90s world that Mayuen, I think, was publishing some of his most famous books is, you know, that is also very, very, that is also very, revel- <sighs> I can't speak. That is also very relevant to Farewell, Farewell Doraemon, our, uh, our story for this episode. So yep, that's news item number two. On to the third one. It's an event that you can attend and it is happening in Bonnie, Scotland, which I'm so far away from here in a small town Cheshire in England. But yeah, this is uh, an event that will be happening at, oh, I just said, didn't I? It'll be happening at Aberdeen University, or rather the, uh, the University of Aberdeen. It's being jointly hosted by the Confucius Institute, also of Aberdeen. And it's being run in conjunction with Paper Republic as well. I think you can possibly hear another plane in the background. Uh, so it's got a program of three different events. So it's spread out over three weeks. So I guess this is a festival in, the, in, in the, a loose sense. Uh, so there's one event called Literary Prose Translation. Oh no, sorry, there are nine events. I'm, I'm talking crap here. So there are nine events, three for each week. Uh, I won't go through all of them, but um, I know Nikki Harmon is, I think, going to be at the very first of the program of events here. And at the end, we've got another show, get a former show guest, uh, Brian Holton, who's going to be talking about, surprise, surprise, his speciality, translating Chinese into English and Scots. So yeah, really cool stuff. If you happen to be uh, in that neck of the woods, then why not go? Okay, last news item. This is a somewhat meta news item, certainly counts as self-promo. I'm going to be hosting an event uh, on behalf of, I don't know if that's the right term, but it's on behalf of Cinemas Books, it's a Cinemas Books event. It's part of their Chinese Literature Readers Club uh, series, and it is on Jiang Zilong's Empires of Dust. So you're going to hear me not talking about the whole thing for an hour, but hosting an event with um, one, maybe two fantastic guests, and then sort of moving the event into group discussions about the book as well. Sinoist Books have put up a sample chapter of the book that you can read because it, it is quite a, a rather large tome. So if you don't think you can read 712 pages before the 19th of June, uh, that's 12 days away from the moment I'm recording this, then you can go download that chapter from the Eventbrite event page and that is right here in the show notes. So this is a virtual event. You don't need to be anywhere near me or Aberdeen to, to go uh, attend. You just need to have an internet connection and a device that can join a Zoom meeting. So I'm sure that's most of you. Right, that is the end of all the news for this episode. I will stop prattling on, and I will move us on to my interview with Mr. Aero Soaranta. So enjoy. Right, so on the show, we have Aero Soranta. Fantastic to have you here. How's it going? Hi, it's going pretty big. It's great to be here. Excellent. Yeah, you're, a, I believe, relatively long-time listener of the show. That's pretty much my favorite kind of guest to have on. So, you know, I'm, I'm excited too. Would you like to introduce yourself to the listeners? Uh, sure. So I'm currently 
a doctoral researcher at the University of Helsinki, uh, where I'm doing a, a project uh, with the working title Estranging Illusions, Alienation in Contemporary Chinese Science Fiction. Um, so I'm also a graduate of, of the University of Helsinki. Uh, I did my uh, master's on East Asian and Chinese studies, uh, mostly on mostly in Chinese. I also took a uh, year of Japanese and some courses related to that. Uh, in my master's thesis, I focused on the three-body problem in relation to uh, post-cultural revolution, literature, rationality, and things like that. But now in my doctoral project, I'm looking at others other than Liu Cixin, mostly from the post-1980 generation. And my kind of like uh, the main thrust of my research is looking into how science fictional estrangement can reveal aspects of social alienation and its root causes that might otherwise remain hidden. Right. I've also uh, worked as a translator. Uh, I have translated Chen Xiaofan's The Mao Ghost in Finnish, as well as Xia Jia's uh, Hundred Ghost Parade Tonight, uh, the latter in collaboration with Suike and Meng Yuhan. I'm also a journalist and a literary critic, a lecturer focusing on Chinese culture. Uh, and if my voice sounds familiar and you happen to speak Finnish, uh, it may be because I'm also an expert guest on a Finnish radio series called uh, Readings and Confusionism, which is exactly what it says. It's about Confucianism and you know, Confucian texts uh, from across the ages. Uh, and it has recently concluded, but all of the episodes are available uh, via Wiley, the Finnish uh, public broadcaster. Excellent. It's um, always good to have another sci-fi fan on, on the show. Before I name the uh, the author and the story that we're doing i thought might be um illuminating uh, for listeners who've not thought about this to jump on what you said about the post 80s writers um so you're you've got something in common with me my entry to chinese sci-fi was Liu Cixin. i'm sure that's not exactly rare i think a lot yeah. of people's first contact with chinese sci-fi was be they chinese or from anywhere else first contact for a lot of readers i think would be Liu Cixin. and he's you know, he was not born in the 90s. He's a bit of an mm-hmm. older writer. But if one goes looking around online or these days in print, probably at least maybe not in word count because the content is mostly short stories. But in the number of stories, the vast majority are from pretty young writers. And it seems like they're, <laughs> at least in English translation publication, they're only getting younger. They're, um, a lot of them are probably younger than me now or about my age. I'm 29. I don't know how old our offer for this story is, actually. But yeah, do you want to say anything about those post eighties uh, writers? Yeah, Atua uh, actually is. Uh, uh, he was born in nineteen ninety, so he's okay. uh, the same age as me. Actually. Okay, I don't have to be. I don't have to feel too um, too much like I'm wasting my life then. Yeah, no, Atua is one of the uh, authors that I'm looking into. Yeah, specifically as a representative of the you know, post-1990 generation. Because in China, you know, these days, the generations uh, last roughly a, roughly a decade. And then you know, most, uh, most of my other authors are, as I said, post born in the 1980s, Chen uh, Xiaofan, Xia Jia, uh, Zhang Ran, and so on. And as kind of like the you know, token uh, older author, I have Han Song. Born from uh, born in the 1960s, so a couple of years younger than Liu Cixin. Um, 
but yeah, there's there is you know this very uh, there is a marked difference uh, between the, the older born in the 1960s authors and those born or those at least those who you know were were children uh, after the um, economic reforms of China and you know ref uh, reforms that opening up uh, came along. So the, the the generation that does not have you know firsthand experience or at least not the clear memories of Maoism of the Cultural Revolution and you know how China was back then and who have also had you know much earlier exposure to uh, Western style of science fiction you know imported you know fiction imported movies and other influences you know that or at least other early influences that came up from outside of China, whereas Liu Cixin uh, famously, you know, experienced his first experience of science fiction was, uh, well, it was Western science fiction, it was Jules Verne, uh, but he was reading it, you know, in the, you know, in, in secret because it was banned literature. Yeah, the, the generation divide actually plays out in our story for this episode as well, in a way. And I'm, I'm going to say it now. Uh, it's by Atre, our author, and it's Farewell Doraemon. Doraemon? I don't actually know how to say his name in, in uh, English, he says, doing quote marks. How, how should we say that one? Doraemon or Doraemon? I would say Doraemon. Doraemon, okay. We're trying to you know, pronounce it as close to Japanese. Yeah. Uh, his his, uh, his Chinese name is a funny one as well because it's got a uh, letter A in it as well as characters. I think it's Duo Lai Among. Is that right? Duo Lai Among. Yeah. Duo Lai Among. What's the A doing there? Is that to make it more cute or? Uh, I I I'm not sure. I think it's possibly because just just because uh, it's supposed to be phonetic, but mm. then you could you know, but you could theoretically also you know like spell it with the uh, uh, you know, yeah hmm. like the uh with the character you know that the, the character that is many used for you know translating that syllable so i i think it may be just you know to make it look more you know maybe more exotic maybe more like science fictional in a sense right because he is a little science fictional creature um yeah i was about to say look well, the next the next question in my list of questions is let's lay out the premise of the story but maybe we should lay out the premise of Dor Doraemon first. Uh, uh, so sure. I, I can probably start on this um, because I I lived in China. And although Doraemon is not Chinese, if you've lived in China, especially if you've taught small children, you, you, you're going to have seen this guy everywhere. Um, he is a Japanese cartoon character. And I say cartoon rather than anime because the style of animation from this cartoon to me, it almost looks closer to a you know a, a normal Western cartoon. It doesn't look as anime-ish to me. It definitely, if if you asked me where it was from, I'd still say Japanese. But I don't know why that is. I'm hardly an expert. But one reason might be because it's quite old. I think it dates back to the seventies. So the manga, yeah, or, or is that just the man the manga does right, not the cartoon? Uh, the, ma the manga is from, uh, or the manga started in 1969. Oh my god! I heard it when I found out. And wow. there are like three uh, anime series. The first one right. was like rather shortly uh, in the, I think, 1973 or something like that. Then there was a very long running one, which started in 1979 and lasted until 2005, which wow. is when they rebooted it. And, you know, the 
as far as I know, the current one is still going on. And Seven, 79 to 2005 was that? Yeah. That's crazy. And, and, they, and then there's like over 40 animated films in addition to, you know, <laughs> the, to the three, three series. Right. So yeah, it's, it's a long running, long running one. Right. Yeah. So the, I, I've still not said what the premise of it is. Uh, the very basics. I do know the very basics. We have a, a little boy. Well, we have a little boy. He's the main character. He's got a friend slash possibly, I don't know, don't know what you call it, like romantic interest sounds a bit weird for a little boy but he's got this crush on this girl as well um and i i don't know if he's not happy in his life or whatever but one day this kind of creature made of circles basically this big cute blue thing which is apparently a robot cat from the future called dorimon appears and if i understand correctly dorimon's whole job is to come back from the future and help this boy be happy and i think that's basically it right yeah, and the reason uh, Doraemon is sent back from the future is because uh, the kid uh, Nobita or Nobi is uh, he's, he's basically a total loser uh, to the extent that all of his descendants are suffering because uh. <laughs> yeah they're they're, in, they're like they're in debt and you know they're they're unhappy uh, because Nobita doesn't you know he he doesn't study hard and you know he tries to shirk responsibility and you know. Basically, he's ruining he's ruining the lives of all of his descendants, but apparently one of them is like some sort of uh, you know inventor, or at least is able to you know get you know get Doraemon to come back in time and you know try to do something about that. And the main way that Doraemon does this is he he has he has a back of holding or sorry a, a fourth dimensional pocket. Uh, this was mm. pre Dungeons and Dragons, uh, which contains like a multitude of gadgets, uh, all kinds of things like you know miniature uh, helicopters that you can stick on your head and a door that you know can teleport you anywhere, uh, all kinds of you know things. Uh, and then he borrows them, or he he lends them to uh, to Nobita, who has some kind of issue usually with you know impressing his you know friend Shizuka, uh, the quote-unquote love interest, or, you know, dealing with bullies or some other, you know, problem that he can't solve. And then Nobita misuses the gadget, uh, hilarity ensues, a uh, lesson is learned, and then is promptly forgotten by the next episode. <laughs> so I think that, that is, I, uh, you know, to very, very distill it down to the basics, that's uh, the, you know, the typical pattern as I understand it. Despite having never watched an episode of this thing, I already knew prior to reading Atred's story about his magic pocket and his magic door, literally dust just by living in China and talking to Chinese people my age um, and maybe people older than me as well, because he's absolutely everywhere there. He's like on toys. Uh, there, were, there were movies coming out in Chinese cinemas, new Doraemon movies from Japan. Uh, yeah, people talk about him on WeChat. Uh, there are Doraemon sticker sets, so like on Chinese social media, he's just everywhere. And it was interesting to me because prior to going there, never, I don't think I'd ever seen an image of this little thing, strange little blue guy. Um, but going over to China, he's suddenly everywhere. And not just in China, actually. I remember my first year in China for Chinese New Year, we, me and some other uh, uh, Westerners went on a little holiday to Thailand. And he was like advertised in all of the uh 
Bangkok monorails or the public transport there. He was maybe not everywhere, but he was very present in Bangkok. And it's I was looking through some old photos recently. Um, when I went back to China to to Shanghai, I went via Kolkata in India, and there I had a photo from Kolkata of some shop front or something where a towel was either hanging out either to dry or for sale, and it had it had Doraemon and Nobita and the characters on it, and it must have jumped out at me. So e- even there, whether the people who owned the towel knew what he was, I don't know, but he found his way to Kolkata as well. Yeah. So do you know much about Doraemon's entry into sort of Chinese collective popular culture? Uh, yeah. Uh, so now, speaking of you know, mainland China specifically, mm-hmm. I'm going to start a bit earlier to, like, to kind of like lay out the context. And you know, like the re- possibly the reason why Doraemon became such a big hit or such a big you know, cultural icon there as well. And as far as I understand, it's related to uh, how Chinese animation in the 1980s, uh, which had been, you know, uh, producing classic, you know, short films and all of that, uh, was going going through a really rough, you know, rough patch. So, uh, you know, market reforms, you know, new competition from, you know, from, you know, uh, outside programming, and then, you know, the lack of you know, state support meant that suddenly, you know, all of the, like, the classic animation studios, like Shanghai, you know, animation film studio, uh, weren't able to compete. They just couldn't, you know, do, they just couldn't produce animation economically sustainable way. Yeah, competing with the rest of the world is hard. And then add on yeah. top of that, decades of hardcore uh, top-down communism doesn't yeah. really put yeah. you in good stead to defeat Japan, animation country, number one or two in the world right yeah and so but when you got to the end of the uh, end of the 1980s start of the 1990s there just wasn't really any children's programming on chinese tv right and which you know uh since at that point you know relations between uh, china and japan were kind of okay there was uh, for what I understand, there was more of a focus on, you know, Sino-Japanese friendship in the media and tensions went, you know, that high as they were, were perhaps like uh, 10, you know, 10 years ago or, or even now. So the, you know, Chinese uh, media censors and the Chinese leadership decided to allow, you know, the importation of Japanese television series, obviously anime, to kind of fill that gap. So there's, you know, something for children on, on the TV. And uh, Doraemon, the anime, as far as I can tell, was first imported to Hong Kong in 1981. Right. Uh, the manga version was officially introduced to the mainland in 19, uh, 1987. And then uh, a dubbed version of, of the anime was first broadcast in Guangdong in 89, and then a second version on CV, CCTV 2 in 1991. So, so, this so is, it's a 90s kids will remember a phenomenon. It's not exactly. an 80s kids will remember phenomenon. Yeah, uh, maybe, of course, you know. I suppose if you're born, born in the 80s, your, your childhood in the 90s would be your memories, maybe. Yeah, right. and of course, since we're talking about China, you know, there probably were you know, un- unofficial parent versions you know, right. circling around, but those are really hard to track. So, yeah, and you know, of course, like as I mentioned, you know, the second 
dubbed version on the mainland was airing on CCTV. TV. So this was something that, you know, kind of had official approval. It wasn't, you know, yeah. it wasn't like illicit or even just, you know, brought up just something that's, yeah. you know, uh, happening on the down low. Doraemon for the masses. Yes. Yeah. And and for, you know, Chinese audiences, considering, you know, uh, the circumstances at the time, I would say that there wasn't probably anything uh, else quite like it on 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 TV or you know available. Uh, you could make maybe make the argument that something you know things like the young leaders, little smart rooms, the future kind of mm-hmm. had similar vibes with the you know gadgets and the futuristic technology and the child you know protagonist. But Doraemon kind of uh, captured this. Uh, like it, it arrived at this, you know, moment where it could, you know, it provided kind of like escapist fiction, captivating uh, the children who were who belonged to kind of like the emerging consumer classes. What one of my sources calls it. Uh, so the standard of living is, you know, rising. People are having all of these, you know, new opportunities to spend their money, you know, on various things. And Doraemon kind of reflected that you know all of the endless endless gadgets uh generally pleasant japanese middle class life but then also a relatable loser protagonist who's not you know perfect and who is not you know doesn't reflect kind of like shall we say official chinese values you know he's not hardworking. he's not uh like some you know perfect pioneer type, type of character but just you know uh, a loser who kind of sometimes just the right thing yeah so he's not a sort of um good academic studious model not a good you know career focused capitalist model and he's not a young pioneer socialist yeah. model either he's just a boy uh so yeah it makes yeah. a lot of sense i realize we should probably get on to the actual story but i was going to say one more thing about this um so I've, I've heard people argue that these days in china or here anywhere really in the age of the internet and streaming and YouTube and the sort of mass, 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 not just the mass proliferation of media, but the mass proliferation of media channels, the fragmentation of our consumer experience. It's pretty much impossible for anything to really dominate in in pop culture, um, for something to sort of bind us all together to talk about. Some things can come close, maybe like Game of Thrones or I don't know, Maybe Stranger Things is the, is the thing right now, but it's nothing on what it was like back in the UK when we had five TV channels, or even in a country like the States, uh, where I guess there has historically been a few more channels. It's just a totally different media environment where everyone is much more channeled into their own channel. And then if looking looking back to 80s China, it feels like a really extreme contrast, especially for consumption of foreign media um, or you know, or just sort of consumption of media for consumption's sake, in a sort of newly marketizing, in a sort of a, a country that's a country that's opening up to those kinds of media. And the impression I got is that Dormon is a thing that a whole generation of kids basically watched. It's not like some were watching cartoon B, C, or D. It's a really universal experience in the minds of people like Atra. Not much to say there, but it it, it means that. I can feel some kind of, I feel like I can kind of get my head around that having, when I, when I was a little kid, having grown up with 
five channels on the TV in theory, but in practice four, because channel five in the UK here had terrible reception. So like if you were a kid growing up, you were watching uh, the CBBC, the children's uh, kids programming or um, CITV, the private uh, company's kids programming. And then maybe uh, in the later 90s, you might have had a Sky satellite dish and Cartoon Network, but that was it really. And I feel like 80s China must just be a much more concentrated version of that experience. And here we have some kind of a nostalgic product for it, but kind of a story that totally stands on its own. Um, but to, to bridge this into talking about Farewell Doraemon, it's, do you think it's basically impossible for someone like Biotsu Shin to have written this? Is it totally a post-80s product? That's a, a very good question. I think that the specifics are something that are very you know, deeply rooted in, you know, or, or very familiar to those who had their childhood in the 1990s. Um, in China, perhaps, you know, as well as uh, even uh, Western countries. In Finland, we talk about, like, we talk about the unity culture mm. uh, a few decades ago when, you know, everybody was watching, you know, the same TV channels. We, uh, we had, you know, even for a long time, we had even less than the UK. There is this, you know, nostalgia of people, you know, thinking about uh, when everybody, uh, everybody was talking about the same thing because it was, it was on TV and everybody was, was watching it. And, you know, and compared to the, uh, you know, social media, bu- supposed social media bubbles of, of today. Uh, but I think there is an, like the undercurrent or the you know, fundamental theme of nostalgia for media in your childhood uh, is also applicable to other periods, which mm. uh, I, I'm going to have an example later on that's going to predate even uh, Liu Tsushin, but Ooh, we'll, you know, we'll, save, uh, we'll save that for now. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing I think is worth uh, mentioning here uh, is that, um, or, or maybe two things that are worth, worth mentioning, is that it, uh, Doraemon was, uh, like you said, it's, it was a generational you know, experience. Like, uh, and one of, one of the reasons to kind of became that is despite being you know Japanese in origin, uh, a lot of Chinese parents and guardians didn't realize that because it was <laughs> bird, bird, it was broadcast you know in in, dub, in a dub version. Yeah, cartoons are much better at disguising those uh, origins than live action productions are, right? Yeah, and and so you know if if there had been like a you know Japanese drama series or you know, live action drama. Uh, parents who would have opposed that, you know, would not have allowed their children to watch it. Uh, mm. You know, didn't pick up on uh, pick up on that. You know, Doraemon is from you know the, from you know the old enemy country. Uh, mm-hmm. That that only became uh, kind of like it, it did become briefly an issue uh, around uh, I think 2014. There was up like a couple of new newspapers in general you know, denounced Doraemon as a plot to expert Japanese values and, you know, brainwash, brainwash our children, but it didn't really go anywhere. Probably because Doraemon is obviously so harmless. That I think time travel is not a Japanese value. Yeah, yeah, that, that is that is really true. And then there's, but also uh, another, yeah, the other thing uh, that's uh, worth 
mentioning here is that, uh, like you said, Doraemon is everywhere in China. It's everywhere in Japan. It's mm. not present uh, simply as you know as the TV series or as the manga or even as you know the movies, but it's it's you know it's on mer- merchandising. You know, if you're a children, you ha- you know if you're a child, you have seen Doraemon. Uh, even if you had, if you somehow had never watched an episode, and yeah. this, this is something that you know, uh, Alexander Sultan, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, uh, notes that it's uh, like compared to kind of like uh, watching a movie, or back before there was kind of like this you know home home entertainment and VHS and DVD you know culture, that was kind of like uh, what they call a you know flash bulb semantic moment you see it once maybe you go see it again but then once it stops running in the theaters you probably won't you know it's yeah, gone it just yeah yeah it's you know it just it just becomes memory mm. with Doraemon you know the Doraemon the character or the characters of the of the you know of the manga the series they're always present because they're you know uh, they're on your eraser they're on your towel they're you know uh, and they might be in 3d if you have a little toy yes well as 2d surfaces yes and that's something you know that is something that is comparable to other media franchises even even now like star wars uh, is i think the, i think that's what kicked off toys right movie yeah. toys star wars or, yeah or you know or merchandising more more general that yeah. was that was the you know the movie franchise that uh, mean that actually the movies aren't are, are thing that they, that makes money. All of the merchandising you know brings in the real profits. Yep. Yeah, because it isn't just a one-off. You can keep rolling it out. Yeah. And that keep then that it's a, what do you call it? It's a virtuous virtuous circle because that keeps before the advent of VHSs that keeps the movie alive in people's consciousness as well. Yeah. yeah. And of course, then they're like you know. Uh, like we mentioned, you know, Doraemon was immediately rebooted in 2005, you know, after the previous series, yeah. previous anime series ended. So it is kind of like, as they say in the story, you know, uh, as they say in Archer story, it kind of is like uh, something that never ends. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm going to steer us into a little closer to <laughs> Farewell Doraemon because. Um, the conversation we're taking seems to be taking a bit of a turn towards postmodern things, media referencing media, um, nostalgia, recycling of culture rather than culture moving forward. And that reminds me of the other Achua story I've done on this show, Flower of the Other Shore with um, Shweting Ni, where like that story is essentially one big riff on American zombie films, basically. Uh, especially its sort of key reference text is uh, the movie World War Z. It plays with World War Z in <laughs> some very funny ways uh, that some of which don't become apparent towards the end. Um, so it kind of gets arguably increasingly postmodern as it goes on. And although I think you don't need to have seen any of these films to enjoy it, it really doesn't completely stand on its own without reference to cinema. Like, popcorn cinema but at the same time it's a very sincere quite moving quite beautiful story and it's plotted quite nicely as well it pulls you along despite being pretty long and my feeling was 
that sort of applies with farewell farewell Doramon as well it's um i mean the postmodern reference nostalgia cultural recycling is right there in the title um but and it's it's long it's 22,000 or possibly 20 closer to 23,000 words so it's arguably a novella yeah and yet it um it kept me reading it's very readable it is pretty emotional and touching and much more than Fly Every Other Shore, it looks at real stuff. It's got a basis in uh, rural, real rural China, whereas Fly Every Other Shore is like, it's not spe- even specified where it's happening. We just sort of assume it's some American city, like maybe LA or something. Um, but this, this one's a bit more nailed down in the present. And to my mind, it is a bit less postmodern. It would still work more or less if you remove... Mm, no, actually, that's not true. I think you do need Doraemon in the story. It doesn't really work without Doraemon. And it doesn't really work without reference to media and the consumption of media because a big part of the connection between our main character in the story and his love interest is their shared enjoyment of possibly pirated, um, what is it, micro-DVDs of Doraemon? So even the format is like a special nostalgia, the, the formats of the medium. I think it was uh, video CDs, which is right. not something I, I, I'm not sure if I've ever encountered them in real yes. life. Maybe I, maybe I have, but, you know, uh, yeah. in my early, early childhood, maybe. I, I, I was kind of like, yeah, I, I was kind of like part of the VHS generation. So because that's what, that's what we, had in, we had at home. Yeah, a CD doesn't have a lot of space. So I wonder if the video you'd be watching on these CDs would be like really compressed. I don't know. That's, yeah, that's a good question. And since they're, they're watching it outside, uh, you know, I think it was on, it was on television. Yeah, it, it was on television, not just, you know, like a movie, you know, uh, like, a, uh, like a movie screen. But yeah, probably not, you know, uh, the most high fidelity from it. Do you do you want to say anything about the postmodern nature of the story, or should we just summarize the plot now? Uh, yeah, um, I think you're you're pretty uh, pretty much right with the comparison to yeah. a flower of the, flowers on their shore. Like they are, they both have kind of like that. Like they're building uh, on the contrast between you know fiction that is fictional, you know, within the universe that, and that's also you know fictional in uh, in in our reality. And the fictional reality, it's kind of like you know, if the if this was a movie, you know, if this was Doraemon, this is what would happen, and it, then it doesn't happen, or at least it doesn't happen, you know, at that point. So it's kind of like you know, it's kind of like hey, we're more you know, this story that Atre is telling is more realistic or it's more rooted in reality, at least in some ways, than you know the fiction, but also they. Both of them kind of had that, you know, sincerity. Like they're not, uh, like uh, they're not stories that are mocking the fiction. They're not trying to, you know, say that it's bad because it's not, or you know, it's that or that's wholly bad, bad uh, because it's you know unrealistic. Yeah, World World War Z and the zombie films are basically they may be being, you know mocked a bit more or they're because they're you know supposedly you know aimed at adults and you know hollywood cliches are you know right for mocking 
but especially especially with Doraemon, it's very sincere, kind of like in how they, you know, how the characters enjoy it and how it brings them joy. Right. Yeah, and like we were saying, the the origins of of those two um, video video forms video media products are different because um you can it's impossible to ignore watching world war z that this is an american movie like it's got yeah. brad, brad pitt's your main character <laughs> how much more hollywood can you get but yeah with uh, a kid's cartoon uh dubbed over from japanese set in a fan you know in a somewhat fantastical story about a robot cat the fact it's japanese is not shoved in your face at all like thinking back to when i was a kid uh, I only really, only really wanted to watch cartoons, and I did prefer the Japanese ones, like Pokemon, to like the, the American ones, like uh, I don't know Scooby Doo. And I would never read, although I knew they were from Japan, they didn't really call attention to that much at all. Maybe a, a teeny bit, but it wasn't something that jar- was jarring for me as a kid at all. Um, I am actually going to get, <laughs> finally going to try and describe the plot of Farewell Doraemon. Um, so you can do it. I'll have a go. Um, I'll try not to spoil too much, although I, I'm not going to stop myself if, if the conversation takes us there. And if you feel I've missed anything really crucial, maybe you can fill it in. Um, I'm going to have to remind myself of the characters' names. I'm scrolling down and I'm not seeing the name, so maybe you can help me there. But we follow a young man who's coming back from Beijing to his rural hometown. I guess it's somewhere in northern China somewhere far but not mega far from Beijing and he's every well there's a there's a really good irony right from the start because everyone thinks this is the kid who made good coming back because he found a professional career as a cartoon artist in Beijing but really he's totally burned out he's become a loser um I think this this it goes that he lost his his girl did his girlfriend cheat on him I don't remember but he, his, he lost his girlfriend. He became depressed. Uh, that caused him to stop doing anything at work. He lost his job. That caused him to fail to pay his rent. And he's basically had to just come crashing home. And I believe he's possibly come back at Chinese New Year. Uh, so everyone kind of expecting him back anyway. Arrow's nodding. So I've got that right. That's that's yeah. reassuring. Um, he, has, he, has, uh, he hasn't been home in a while. Right. Uh, yeah, that's important. So, so he's because he moved to the he moved to the city with his aunt when he was quite young right and then right. he's been back maybe you know once for a brief while so he's like a you know stranger in a kind of little land yeah uh, type of situation and it's the exposition in the story is pretty good because some of the information i've shared we we get right at the start but i think the thing about his aunt taking him his him away that we find out that later. And another another thing we find out gradually is the state of his home hometown or his home village now versus in the past. It was never a well-off place to begin with, but um it's gone into decline. I think it's it's kind of implied that the market economy has caused it to go into decline. Um the protections that were there for poor rural Chinese people have been stripped away. So when a business fails, it can't get back up and the investment to set up new businesses isn't there basically so like there's a a brewery uh that that just fails and doesn't come back um the living the local people when they get injured like if they break their leg they're just stuck there so the only 
way to make good has become to get out like our main character did at the same time that we're in the present he's having flashbacks to when he was a kid um i'll try i'll try to summarize this relatively concisely so there was a a neighboring family that had a projector for like sort of open air outdoor cinema and they had these they would bring in the most popular uh, videos that they would bring in these uh video cds that they were bringing in from the city most popular ones were dormon dormon discs where the the kids would all gather around and watch this cartoon from japan and i'll just say it right now the actual dormon does not appear in the story guys I was a bit disappointed about that. I was like, wow, I thought we were really going to cross the bridge here. But no, the actual Doraemon does not, an actual Doraemon does not appear. It's just the media that the kids consume and then reminisce or about. Or he. Uh, yeah. It depends on, you know, it's going to depend on, you know, what, you, what your definition of, of an actual Doraemon is. But yeah, the, the blue robot cat does not you know, yeah. appear as a character in the story. Yeah, but the media does create does replicate itself in a way in reality which is interesting yeah yeah um so the kids grew up watching this thing and our young our young boy who's a sensitive lad who doesn't really get on with the other kids he likes to just walk around the town on his own he bonds with this other kind of vulnerable kid who's a little girl who is um has an abusive dad basically he's he's a drunk and he makes her go buy booze for him and he he beats her up when he's mad takes out his anger on her uh and then i think as, as they go through school they have like an awkward teenage romance and it seems to be blossoming um it, it's very sweet it's really nicely written reminded me a bit of this kind of sweet innocent relationship in flower of the other shore but there's a crucial moment um where the young man kind of blows it by accident and i can't really remember the details precisely um but it's just kind of like he is in the wrong place at the wrong time. He's not quite decisive enough. Can you remember that, how that crucial moment goes? Yeah, it's kind of like uh, it's brought up later on. It's kind of like a one to nail scenario. Oh, yeah. That's so right. he's, he's trying to, you know, uh, he's, he's going, you know, to sell some scrap uh, in order to, you know, get more to get more of Doraemon, so they oh, can yeah. watch, watch it together. Yeah. And then he is stopped by, uh, well, the, uh, the main character is called Hu Chua, uh, or was it Hu Cho? Uh, hold on, I'll check this because it's going to bother me. Hu Cho. Hu Cho, yeah. 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 And he is, you know, he's stopped by uh, the father of his, you know, love interest uh, slash childhood friend who then gets, you know, his leg broken, which is going to cut, which later on causes all kinds of misery for uh, Tang Lu, you know. Uh, and Tang, Tang Lu is the girl. Yeah. 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 So, and, you know, if he had, if he had, uh, if Hu Cho hadn't been uh, in the, you know, uh, in the, in that exact place at that exact time, it maybe wouldn't have happened. Right, yeah. And the, the character I've not mentioned yet is the school teacher. And that she she reminds me, she's she's the element in the story that does remind me of some Liu Zixin I've read. Mm. She's like this um very morally upright school teacher fighting, fighting the tide in, in the countryside. And he he has a story called the village school teacher, 
which yeah. is a is a male teacher, but in a very similar role. Um, yeah, although although the situations are you know due to uh, perhaps that you know because of the time period, this their situations are quite different. I yeah. think it, I was actually thinking that uh, in Farewell Doraemon, it's kind of like I and I, I, I don't think it's perhaps an intentional reference, but it's kind of like uh, a subversion in a sense of the village teacher in that, you know, the teacher is not, he, uh, she does not succeed in, you know, keeping the children who are going away to the factories and uh, going away, you know, to be migrant workers in the city to continue to continue their studies. Yeah, she's on a, a doomed mission. And yeah. I, I, again, I don't totally remember the full plot of the village school teacher, but you feel, at least in the first half of the story, he is he's well aware that he's fighting against the tide, that he can't yeah. really he can't really win, but he can't do everything he can. So, yeah. yeah. So in, in the present town, um, there is this hut by a graveyard where this basically spooky, spooky gothic mad old lady lives. And we find out as the story progresses, that's the woman who was Hucho's school teacher. And she's, I think she's the only school teacher in town, or at least certainly she's the only one that features in the story. And she was quite the disciplinarian, uh, but did have, um, did really care about the kids. So I guess maybe like a Chinese or a, yeah, Chinese teacher archetype, right? And she's from another obviously she's from another generation she's from the cultural revolution generation and we we find out um i'm spoiling it here we find out in a well-plotted way which will not match my badly organized description we find out that she was part of a team of scientists who were sent and i'm i'm spoiling by the way so cover your ears if you don't want to hear this skip forward say 10 minutes um she was part of a team of scientists who were sent to to this village for whatever reason and they're working on something there's this basement beneath her house uh where there's these strange boxes and essentially they were working on a time machine it worked using what was it loop they were creating loops in time i can't remember if if they were using like sort of narrow narrow kind of gaps in the fabric of reality that were just there naturally or whether they were creating them do do you remember i'm I don't remember either. I think it was either something that you know occurred naturally uh, in this region, or then, or it was the, their experience caused you know there to be you know a lasting an- anomaly. Right. But I, I don't remember remember which which one it was. Okay. But it, nevertheless, they went quite successful. Right, and they. I think the practical upshot is they've left behind something in the river beneath the water, a little pocket. Uh, and this is where the, the Doraemon starts creeping in. So beneath the water in the river, just outside of town or in the edge of town, there is a little portal and we know something's going on with it because items seem to be washing up. Well, they seem to be jumping from the river to her hut. And some of them, despite being very old, are in pristine condition. I think that might be related to the scrap, uh, Hucho getting fetching the scrap because it's stuck there in the river. There's like space that shouldn't necessarily be there. It seems deeper than it really is. Yeah, he he. Uh, in the, in that case, it kind of uh, 
he manages to reach you know into the you know time portal and then he pulls some scrap iron or what what he thinks is scrap iron from uh teacher chen's lab right which <laughs> causes you know which causes you know the machinery machinery in the lab to break right so he, he's um yeah so he's he's uh, inadvertently ruining everything just like any good kid in a cartoon and he's he's re- he's he's sticking his hand into the water but little does he know it's re- it must be coming out in the basement of his old teacher so it's quite quite pleasingly put together by atria and i guess t- to get to jump to the point here he realizes that there is a way he can fix everything in tang lu's life because tang lu as an adult things have really gone wrong for her uh her dad has become he's not the dangerous figure he was but he's totally helpless um he's dependent on her and she is she's ended up married to a guy that seemed like he was okay upon first meeting but is basically a huge ass he he gambles all the money away he has anger problems i think he he um beats her too there's a lot of domestic violence in this story and There are all sorts of other domestic problems too. Like there is adultery going on in the village. There's violence. So social breakdown, basically. Yeah, suicide also. Suicide. Yeah, yeah. So Tang, Tang Lu, um, she does commit suicide in the end, right? She dies. Yes. Yeah, so Tang Lu dies. That's how wrong it's gone for her. And Hu Cho realizes, wait, there's there's something I can do here. There's There is literally a time travel machine in town. I'm gonna go. Uh, I'm gonna go set things right. So I guess it's a little bit like the premise of Back to the Future. He goes back, um, but to help his past self by like intervening at the crucial moment. And it's that moment where he um, he was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and he, he does something I've often kind of fantasized about doing: <laughs> going over to his kid self and being like, "Okay, listen, here's what you do: do A, don't do B, do C, and in the long term, do this." And it's basically a formula for um, holding on to his relationship with Tang Lu. Um, so giving himself something, giving him a happy relationship for the rest of his life, presumably, but also saving her life. And then this, the, and the interesting end point for me is what the hell happens to him at the end of the story? Because he's fixed his child life self, but then he's he's zapped himself back into the past where he has no you know no id he's no one and having no id in um post 80s china shuts you out of society we talked a bit about that in um more than one child with shen yang she's an id i think she's i don't know if she still is but as a kid she was an idless citizen and that that's that does not help you in china at all that's a huge problem and the story does not even sort of explicitly say now he's screwed. We're just left to sort of figure that out for ourselves, I think. Yeah, you, you, you know, kind of, you know, from the point of view of the, view of the story, or perhaps even for the character, uh, let's say Hucho Alpha, you know, it doesn't matter because he has completed his mission. He has, you know, become the Dolaimon, you know, to mm-hmm. uh, to Tang Lu, and he's okay with that. I, I think there here the, the, this is very similar to you know Flower's Other Shore. Which is mm. also kind of you know in this classic male protagonist saves girl, you know way, but he is also he also doesn't like he isn't rewarded uh, with you know a romantic relationship. Our Ucho, you know the protagonist of, of this story, 
doesn't get to have a relationship with Tang because he has been traveled in the past and he's now way older and his past self is the one who maybe you know gets to be together with her. So it's kind of, it's you know very you know self-sacrificing you know way of of being you know of being heroic. Yeah, it's not like he fixes everything and then his consciousness zaps into him, him his past self. There's no two yeah. of him in the world. Yeah, and he doesn't really he doesn't return you know to the future where everything is now better. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um I think we're ready to move on to the next question, which is what's your connection with the story? So I believe you've got you you've got a paper um about this story that is in the works or is written and you're going to present on it. So I could ask you about your academic connection, but also just like how did you end up reading it? And then how did you connect with it upon reading? And any take it anywhere you like. I think I read the story not far or, well, not immediately after it was published in English, uh, but still some time ago. So I don't quite remember the specifics other than that. I was very you know, impressed and moved by it. And then when I started planning my uh, thesis project, it kind of you know, came to me as uh, like you know, something that might be used to represent the, you know, post-1990s writers. Mm. Uh, you know, like in my you know, current draft, I, I will be mostly talking about the final chapters, you know, where after all, you know, all of the discussion about alienation and uh, some more dystopian stories and, you know, uh, kind of like all of the problems, uh, you know, of Chinese society and what's behind them, I'm uh, I will be turning to a more hopeful story. You know, how do we move move forward from all of these, you know, major issues, and what can we actually do about them as individuals? And that's uh, also something that my paper will be uh, focusing on. So I'm presenting at this year's FinCon uh, academic track uh, in Espoo, Finland, uh, in early July. And the name of my uh, paper will be hold on. I will uh, dig it up from my notes. Academic titles, they're never, they're rarely short. Yes. So the title of my paper will be uh, For Every Lonely Childhood, There is a Doraemon, Alienation, Generic Hybridity, and the Vindication of Optimism in Archer's Farewell Doraemon. So very, very classic, you know, quote from the story, you know, long subtitled, you know, that thing, like Tao says, I'm, interested in how the story portrays not you know not giving into apathy when faced with you know suffering and you know systemic problems and also you know the importance of imagination kindness which are both you know very uh, present themes in story and and on a more meta level kind of like the idea of alternate endings to establish narratives Mm. Uh, which is uh, perhaps something we will be touching upon later in this, you know, in this podcast. Yeah, yeah, I I do want to talk about endings. Yeah. Um, one of the things I tend to bring up in general um, when talking about literature, but definitely thinking about the translated Chinese sci-fi that is, or just Chinese sci-fi that's out there, is hope versus despair, because. Uh, like I said, my first contact with Chinese sci-fi was Three Body, and hope and despair are massively present in that whole trilogy. Um, the hope uh, is sometimes foolish hope, and sometimes it's like 
a really quite deep, maybe not deep, but powerful idea of like carrying on the torch despite all the wind trying to blow out the torch, keep keeping the flame alive of the human spirit. But also there is huge, huge pessimism in in Three Body. I mean, the title of the second book, The Dark Forest, if you know what the dark forest means, uh, it's one of the most pessimistic uh, theories presented in fiction or maybe even outside of fiction you'll ever read. Um, I don't think the Shin is a sunny optimist, but I don't think he's without hope either. And then when you read some of the post-80s sci-fi uh, from younger Chinese writers who are closer to our age, um, a lot of it is more sunny. A lot of it uh, is, is less heavy. And even in the uh, sort of heavier, more emotional stories, like I think this one is, this one gets pretty dark. It still has like a, a warm heart in it. It's a very warm hearted story. So I, my, my feeling is some of, with, with the stuff I've read from the younger writers, some of it doesn't do as much for me because it's, it's too kind of nice. But some of it really uh, balances drama and suffering along with hope. And I, I really see that here. So yeah, I, I think that's an interesting angle. Is there anything, anything you'd want to spell out a bit more about how you're going to talk about hope in, in, in this story and other, other stories from writers of a similar age? Uh, so with this, you know, uh, with this story specifically, I'm kind of like, uh, I'm interested, you know, in uh, hope as kind of like, a, you could say a strategy, strategy or maybe a choice, you know, made by individuals who face problems that are very much bigger than, them, than themselves. Like this is, uh, this is a story that, you know, presents these, you know, huge systemic, you know, inequalities, you know, the position of, you know, rural women in China, how, you know, the countryside is, you know, slowly, you know, being, slowly decaying, all the, you know, people are still going away. Uh, you know, nobody's, you know, really, you know, nobody really cares about rural people on a social level. But then there's this one, you know, protagonist who sees all of this and, you know, chooses to do something, uh, even at very personal cost, you know, in the hope that it will, you know, change something, it will at least uh, help one person, you know, to have a better life. And that's kind of like, it, it is, you know, somewhat existentialist, you know, choosing to do good even, you know, when even in a world where, where nothing perhaps that you do seems to matter. But it's, you know, like it says in the title, it's a vindication of that optimism that it is the right choice. It, you know, hope is not foolish or naive, but it is a valid, you know, re- reaction. Right, yeah. And like I said, you can kind of see that in the, the teacher character as well. And it's it's an interesting one because you have hope hope as a collective thing or hope as an individual thing. So in Hucho, yeah, he's I think he's pretty aware he's there's not much he can do to help the village, but he can help his child self and Tang Lu as a kid. So he's an yeah. individual acting as such. But then the school teacher is kind of a, represent, a representative of that past era because she's from Mao's China, which for all its flaws was trying to provide a better life for the masses. And you can kind of see how she's going about that in her teaching, but also 
I thought I thought the the way her scientific past was really interesting because that that reminded me of Three Body as well. It's like this very Cold War crazy science uh, group she's a part of, which you can see in U.S. history, and I think is a I think it's kind of a real thing in Chinese history. So she's part of this group and she was sent out to try and work on time travel in the countryside. I suspect there was no special Mao Zedong assigned team in the real historical China working on time travel. But um, they were working nuclear weapons. Right, right, right. Yeah, which that's is, kind of the, the, at least, you know, the most famous you know, science project of that time. Yeah, which is fairly impressive considering where you think you think about where china was at just a few decades before versus where say america or uh russia or britain or yeah. france was decades before it, that it, is quite amazing actually yeah and it, it it tells you of the you know priorities of the leadership of that time shall we say <laughs> right yeah 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 just i guess part of a wider rush to achieve lots of things and maybe it's maybe it's telling that they achieved nuclear bombs more effectively than they achieved uh, feeding everyone effectively. Yeah. Although they did, you know, that was achieved too in the end, I suppose. The thing I'm thinking of is the underground city in Beijing. Do you know about that one? Um, like the bomb shelters? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yes, that's so, so for anyone who doesn't know, if you want to go down a real internet wormhole, um, I think it was Mao himself, but whoever it was, whether it was a collective decision or personal decision, when China and the Soviet Union were having their fallout, uh, work began on building a, like a basically city beneath the city in Beijing for people to retreat under and live in in the event of a nuclear attack. And for a long time, a lot of the entrances were still accessible. I think, I think that that accessibility reached the end of the road around the time of the 2008 Olympics, a lot of the entrances were were holed up. But there's an amazing, I think it's a Vice article, where um, some people were able to find one of the old entrances. And it's a very Farewell Dorimon-esque story, actually. The entrance was in the house of just some, some you know, longtime homeowner in Beijing. And because the, the trap door or whatever it was, was in his property, the authorities, um, it, when it wasn't visible, maybe the authorities didn't know about it. So if you knew a guy, if you knew a guy who knew the guy, you could pay some money, he'd let you in your house, and then you could go down into the underground city. And perhaps there's other entrances like that, guarded by aging school teachers. Mm-hmm. Who knows? But yeah, just, just to say, I thought that was an interesting snapshot of like, not just Cold War China, but like post-war, the post-war world where there were these big, utopian uh projects and ideas versus now where like the last big collective project we had like that was probably the push to produce covid vaccines and that was pursued by private companies like pfizer who were aided by governments like the u.s government and have become incredibly rich off the back of it so (laughs) it's just a different era um we're not we're not doing crazy things like that anymore as far as I'm aware, who knows, perhaps, perhaps things are going on in area 51 that we don't know about. Um, I've really, really gone off the rails here. Where, where, what were we talking about? Connection to the story. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I got much more to say. Did you, did you want to say something? uh, One, you know, constant difference between like, you know, the hope and, you know, how teacher Chen and Hu Hu Cho, you know, 
choose to approach it. Uh, one kind of like, you know, uh, uh, one moment that made me you know, smile a little is when uh, Miss, Miss Chen, you know, the teacher, you know, summons Hu Cho to her office when he's a kid and, you know, says, you know, why are you interested in literature? Literature is useless. You know, only science can change the world, you know, and which, you know, obviously, since we know that Achue is a writer, you know, is very ironic. And I, it's not, you know, kind of like brought up, brought up explicitly in the story. But I think, you know, like the subtext is that Doraemon and, you know, fiction in general can inspire people in ways that, you know, perhaps just focusing on, hard science, on the hard sciences cannot. So, yeah, you know, you know, fiction is important uh, for for at least because it can you know inspire hope and it can, can inspire action. Yeah, it it doesn't do nothing. Yeah, it's I have, I have yeah. mixed feelings about how much literature can change the world, but I can say it can change people, and people make the human world at least at, at least. So yeah, I wouldn't want yeah. to live in a world without literature. I wouldn't really want to live for for as much as I'm bigging up, you know old political mass projects i don't really think i'd want to live in cultural revolution china because i like my fiction i like having yeah that's one thing i didn't mention so like if you want to talk about a rain a limited range of media maybe 80s china is one but 60s 70s china is the same but different isn't it you have a, a kosher limited menu of what you can consume um but yeah that's neither here nor there what was I going to say? Oh, that's terrible. What was it? Oh, yes. I remember what it was. So in my, my job, I am working for a company that has a few different science, uh, medical science related magazines. And the editors uh, write all the content or interview people to produce the content, basically. And the company hires people from, for, the, for these editorial roles. The company hires some people from scientific backgrounds, um, be they like a recent graduate or a PhD holder or someone who's done other science writing. And some people like me from basically a humanities background. I did science to the end of high school, um, but I'm an English and publishing grad. And of course, you, you don't need to have a humanities degree to have sort of a rounded experience of fiction. Like we have people with a science degree but who read a lot of books or watch a lot of films. But you do have other people who don't really have that, that grounding, humanities grounding. Uh, I'm not going to go any further than that because uh, you never know who's listening. But um, it is interesting to see how the, the writing and the perspectives people can bring come partly you know, from their education, partly from who they are as a person, but a big part of it is the media they consume and to put it diplomatically man how do I say this um you can see to a certain extent the media does not make the person but the media does shape the person's perspective and range of possible perspectives on the world yeah so I I'm not sure if I'm as much of a firebrand as Lu Shun as to like what we should be doing with our writing but I'm not a total cynic either. So yeah. Um, and I've, I've name dropped Lu Shun. Uh, is he relevant to this story? 
Oh, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> uh, so uh, Lushun is, you know, I, I would say that Lushun is very relevant here. And to talk about, you know, why he's relevant here and, you know, you know science fiction in general, uh, I would like to, you know, drop in Kara Healy's idea of generic hybridity, which some listeners may be familiar, but, you know, to recap, her view is that Cronenberg Chinese SF is characterized by, you know, combining, subverting, and re- reinterpreting, you know, the conventions of both Western, you know, science fiction and Chinese literature traditions, you know, especially the critical realism of evolution and company, kind of like the mainstream of, you know, modern Chinese literature. And, you know, I'm just going to, like, list some of the, you know, conventions or tropes of critical realism in this story in particular. So we've got the, you know, educated sort of intellectual narrator who is returning to his native place that he, you know, both recognizes and, you know, feels like a stranger in. Then there's, you know, you know uh, there's a uh, loner and the crowd, you know, juxtaposition uh, when, you know, when our protagonist is, you know, uh, watching, you know, people around him watch something terrible happen, and you know, the, the crowd does nothing about about that, which you know brings mind Illusion's uh, experience of you know watching a photograph of an execution by Japanese forces in China, which was kind of like his big wake up moment, you know, to start producing literature and you know try to change Chinese culture. Uh, then we got the you know figure of the oppressed woman, very you know popular in uh, critical realist literature. Illusion's New Year Sacrifice is you know the story that first comes to my mind, but there are other examples from that time. Uh, then there's this is probably not as much of a convention, but it is a connection uh, to one story by Illusion, uh, which is Village Opera, kind of like a semi-autobiographical story where he recalls, you know, his experiences watching Chinese opera and how he didn't, you know, uh, how he has tried tried to watch it. Rather, we should say the uh, point of view character, you know, has tried to watch, you know, Chinese opera as an adult, is really, really not impressed by it. And then he recalls, oh yeah, when I was a child in the car, you know, visiting car side, I saw some opera with some kids and, you know, it was a really uh, fabulous experience. So it's, like I kind of foreshadowed earlier, uh, this, you know, uh, like the theme of how, you know, fiction or entertainment experience in childhood uh, can, you know, stick to your mind, you know, uh, even as a, as a grown adult, be something that has precedent, you know, way before the, you know, post-1980 or the post-1990 generation. So yeah, those are like some of the commonalities with Lushun. But the main difference, I would say, is that in Achua's story, Hucho, uh, uh, rather, uh, ultimately refuses this kind of like uh, Lushunian role of, of a passive observer, which is why the, you know, the ending of the story is rather different than in, say, New Year's Sacrifice or uh, My Old Home or other you know, classic Lushun stories. And that's kind of like what I'm uh, what I'll be getting at in my presentation about, you know, the idea of alternate endings, since these are stories that are really, really familiar to, you know, at least educated Chinese audiences. Everybody knows what's going to happen 
everyone knows what ha what happens to Xiangming's wife in, in their sacrifice. Everybody knows that. You know, if you uh, if there's a uh, female character, you know, uh, abused, you know, uh, marginalized in the current side, uh, she's not probably going to make it. You know, by the end of the story, but in a choice narrative, this this ending sort of happens, but then it gets reverted, you know, within the story. And that we, and I link that to the idea of that, you know, we shouldn't be uh, we shouldn't be you know, too cynical about you know people that are suffering. We shouldn't be uh, apathetic towards their suffering, but we should take some sort of action, even though uh, you know the problems that we are facing you know, unsustainable level may seem uh, insurmountable. Right. Uh, I realized earlier, I did a bit of an oopsie when I was talking about Lu Xun, because I kind of asserted bold, well, I asserted plainly that he had this hardcore belief that writing changes the world or should change the world. But I recently read uh, the book Jottings Under Lamp Lamplight, which is a collection of his essays, all nonfiction, uh, translated to English and a lot of the writing there shows a guy who's pretty conflicted about the usefulness of what he's doing and even, even in um, that famous essay uh, in it's the preface to Outcry Nahan uh, where he decides to like sort of get up and do something actually his friend tells him you need to get up and do something and his his conclusion is well maybe maybe I'll give it a try and then I'm pretty sure in Jottings Under Lamplight he says a few times look, I don't really think I can change anything. I'm just doing this because it's the only thing I know uh, how to do, which, I mean, I can relate. <laughs> uh, that's life for a lot of us. Yeah. Uh, a lot of us with a, who've, who've tried and have bumped up in the face of reality. Um, so yeah, I, I, I want to say on the record, that idea of him as the firebrand uh, motivated writer trying to fight for change is itself a cartoon and you might say it's a children's cartoon because i i've been told anyway or i've heard that's the version of lucian that you are introduced to going up through school in china but it's a simplified cartoon of the real man and his writings and reading those yeah. writings especially the nonfiction, shows you shows you the real yeah. lucian um the other thing i want to say is yeah in jottings for lamplight his um quite genuine concern for women um, is is there and it doesn't it does not feel insincere it never feels kind of condescending or creepy he just seems like a guy who sees suffering and is moved and is quite honest about the fact that the 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 women his own age or the younger women that are involved in the activist groups he's trying to um, sort of fly the flag for or the women who he's taught in classes don't have don't have it good uh, and when they are on the front line fighting for change, they're the ones who seem to get hurt the most and the most easily. A thing that really struck me in Jossings for Lamplight is how many of the pieces included are his dedications for students who've sort of been beaten up or killed protesting against the, um, the governments of the time. And a lot of them are, are young women and the way he writes about them just feels very sincere. So yeah, I just wanted to say that. Um, it's an interesting thing in his writing yeah. that I didn't necessarily expect going in. And I think Ashway could have really bungled that in the story. He could have made the romance overly sugary. 
you could have made it weird or creepy given that it's about kids but i think it's it's executed really well i can i can definitely think of like female characters in chinese fiction literature and some sci-fi but i don't i think sci-fi is not the worst offender at all but a lot of it to me kind of made me cringe um or made me think this isn't really real or sincere this is just fiction this is serving yeah there, this isn't you know a character in her own right but you know some kind of like symbol or reward you know or, or yeah projected um yeah. but yeah in, in atra's writing the romance is definitely fictional romance it's got some kind of uh sparkle or ideal that real life doesn't quite so yeah. i wouldn't say it's a re- hardcore realist but i would say it's done very well and it feels very sincere um so, yeah one reason that you know it feels uh, appropriate is because the narrator is looking at his own childhood you know right you know yeah he's he's being he's being nostalgic when you know the, his current reality and the, especially the current reality of Tang Lu is uh, portrayed very realistically. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Uh, he's and he's he's probably he's probably better at remembering his own childhood through clear eyes than most of us because you know I, mm-hmm. to me anyway I didn't feel like we were dealing with the uh, unreliable narrator. It felt mm-hmm. just like straightforward flashbacks. Um, so yeah. the story's not put, not playing with that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, Taking the conversation onward, we've we've totally jumbled the order of questions I laid out. So I'm just I'm gonna try and take us naturally to what we were going to do next, which was endings. Um, so my feel my feeling about the ending of kids TV shows is, well, I don't know if it's deep, but I can go on about it for a long time. Going back to what we're talking about, consuming uh, kids media or just consuming media as a kid. Uh, for me, it was like I was born 1993, so I was really engaging consciously with media at like the turn of the millennium onwards, watching kids shows on terrestrial television. I didn't get the ability to like record and watch TV until maybe like midway through high school. So I was just consuming stuff when it was on the box and maybe a parent would record it to a tape or a later DVD. But basically it would show on the telly and then it was gone. And the, the story I often tell about that is that was fine for watching the TV show Pokemon because Pokemon had, it had it did have an overarching story, but if you missed an episode, you didn't really miss much. You didn't need, there wasn't a plot where you needed to catch every episode to follow it. So it was an easy show for me to watch. It didn't create any like formal fear of missing out. Like what if I don't tune in one week? Or maybe it did a little bit, but not plot-based FOMO. Whereas there was another Japanese kids show Digimon and I always felt this kind of feeling of longing sounds a bit overdramatic but this feeling something was missing because it did have more of an overarching plot characters had um, beefs with each other or friendships with each other that would develop over the series or um, a conflict wouldn't be resolved you know a fight or something might not be resolved at one at the end of one episode and would continue into the next one and if you're not a kid whose setting is watched by these shows, who just kind of has a vague idea of when they're on, like me, I was only catching maybe about a quarter of the episodes. So it was this very weird fragmented experience where the feeling I had was not dissimilar to nostalgia, where it's like you always feel like there's something you didn't quite get. So like as a 
must have been about 20 one summer holiday i just sat down and rewatched the whole thing on youtube and it felt a bit weird because rewatching kids shows is not really for me but it gave me closure it was if i felt a bit like i imagine hucho might have felt solving this one big problem of his life obviously i wasn't solving the hugest problem of my life but i was closing off something that had bothered me because of the nature of media and the way i was able to access it at the time and the reason i bring this up is the characters in Farewell Dorimon at one point are speculating about how the show ended and i think as teenagers they they discussed some rumors that were like they'd picked up from i think the internet or from the just the playground whisper net that um it turns out the boy nobita was like insane and the robot cat was a dream inside of his head he was he was mentally ill um so there's like these kind of dark versions of things that teenagers like to dream up yeah and i was like yeah this feels really real because this is this thing where you weren't you never had any access to the ending or you just didn't turn on your tv when the ending came on or for these kids they never bought or their parents never bought the right mini CD that had the final episode. And when I was researching about Doraemon, I realized this must have been a real confusing thing because so many iterations of the show have been out there. It must have had many different endings. And like, sure enough, from what I read, there have been a few different endings which have all been similar, but not the same. So like the, the archetypal ending is that Doraemon needs to go back for some reason. And perhaps his job was done. Um, so the, there's some commonality between those endings but they're all different from each other and i feel like in the kid's mind you're never going to be even in an adult mind you're never going to be able to properly sort of file and remember what the real ending was because or what each went ending was and as to the question of what the real ending is there is not one real ending and because there is no god of Dorimon who will come down and say this is the canon actual ending this is why it's happy. This is why it's not. It's not happy. So you this never. This is how. You know, this is how Batman dies. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm. I'm using fuzzy logic here because I don't think there's a logical way to tie it together. But that feeling of like, the, that the characters experience of like, how can I tie a neat bow over the show, and they never realize they can't because they're kids and they can't reflect to that level. It just really vibed with me. So did you have any thoughts about, I don't know, endings uh, in the story and meta-commentary on endings? That is a really interesting question. And I, I, I don't know if I have, if I really have anything, you know, deeper to add to that. Uh, one, that. One thing that kind of comes to mind is how they're talking about, you know, how when the characters as children are talking about how Doraemon is never going to stop. That you know, there's always going. To, they're always producing more episodes. There's like mm. thousands of them already. Uh, so you know, there's and there's going to be more. So we 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 will watch Doraemon until you know they're the rest for the rest of our days. I'm not sure if they you know actually say like. Uh, I think they basically you know, say that. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure if they actually say actually say you know until we die. I think they say, certainly you know, until we grow old. Yeah, but yeah, it's kind of like this, you know, very, you know, very much a, like a kid's view of how time works. <laughs> that you know, like, you know, you're vaguely aware that at some point you're going to be old because that's what you know, 
uh, you know, people tell you and you see old people around you, but then you think that, oh yeah, I'm going to watch Doraemon because, you know, because Doraemon is really important to me at this moment. So it's always going to be important. Yeah, you know about what, time, but yeah. you don't know about the consequences of time, really. Yeah, yeah. You, or you don't you don't know how you know, time changes things. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, what actually, you know, where, like, whereas from, you know, an adult's point of view, you, you know that, okay, yes, there is going, you know, there is probably going to be more Doraemon, you know, we, we you know it, it, it keeps getting reviewed that you know there's so much you could you know spend i don't know how much time you know if you're we're trying to you know watch all of the episodes in order but you also know that these kids are going to grow up and most of them you know forget about Doraemon, and then it becomes you know it stops being something they're actively invested in you know in their daily lives and it just becomes you know a childhood childhood memory that they maybe revisit them, you know, when they discover that, you know, they're all VCDs or, you know, they go watch, you know, Stand By Me, Doraemon, you know, with their own kids or something like that. It is, it's kind of like a trope in children's fiction that like this, you know, like this idea of an endless summer holiday, you know, like, you know, the summer that never, never ends. Yeah. A summer beyond your reach. That's the Shaja collection. In my interview, when she came on this show, she was talking about that feeling she got in her own summers was captured in a Ray Bradbury story. I forget. It's got a a title similar to the title of her collection. But yeah, I know what you mean. Um, And I think it was appropriate that I finally closed off that that loop and found out what the plot, the actual plot of Digimon was on the summer holiday when, (laughs) you know, um, I wasn't doing much with myself. But it was nice weather. A nice weather in Scotland is especially special. Maybe, maybe you've got a similar problem in Finland with the weather. I don't know. Yeah, but it's uh, but it's currently raining, and I think uh, below fifteen degrees Celsius. Oof. It's it has been a you know un, you know unusually cold you know, cold spring. So hmm. I guess endless summer must be a reality uh, in summertime in Scandinavia, right? Well, you no. Know, uh, endless light, at endless least, light. Go, go go north enough. Yeah, mm, uh, right. but it is not. You know, it definitely doesn't doesn't mean that. You know, like it, it is not un, unheard of to uh, have. You know, like sleet and snow in in midsummer. You know, in uh, in North Scandinavia. So, mm. you know, uh, summer is relative, but at least you know, you know it, at least it's not endless night. Yeah, yeah, I I. Would find it hard to parse whether I prefer the light or the heat in summer because mm. um, the light is probably what makes me happy uh, but the heat is I guess the light is more intellectual than the heat that's my that's my take on that and I wanted to say say something about the lack of endings in kids media say something say something kind of critical or mean for possibly mm. the first time in this whole in our whole conversation because um so i was talking about how different media can give you different perspectives um but i think media can also be pernicious especially our sort of modern postmodern or yeah our postmodern consumer media i think it can recreate childhood forever uh, mm-hmm. the feeling that things should not and don't have to end um like dormon seems like dormon is just never going to die pokemon is still around 
I think that's that's crazy that Pokemon is still going. Um, things refuse to die because death isn't nice, you know. People, um, you can see it in in um, Western movies. It's so obvious. I barely need to spell it out. But sequels, remakes, reboots, uh, intellectual property—that's the status quo of Western cinema. It's it's not good, and it's a product yeah. of the nice, fuzzy, warm feeling we get when things never end i think i think that's part of it and it it just so happens to line up quite nicely with um a for-profit business model uh, if if we keep or i say we if enough people uh, prefer familiar things to persist forever then that's what the market will will give us uh, mm. and i was about to say yeah i guess that you see it most in, in the marvel movies which are essentially kids movies for adults like I, I saw on facebook this uh fairly um conservative christian girl who was at my school was posting on facebook a warning about the new doctor strange film saying this is not a kid's film it's, it's been marketed as such and my like initial reaction was well that's silly sometimes kid stuff is scary but i thought about it a bit more and it's like this she's just commenting on a fault line that a lot of people don't want to look at is that this sort of media is infantilizing and one of the things that so it, it blurs the line between what's for adults and what's for kids and i think to to my mind a refusal to accept the end of things or the downsides of life is not always a good thing um like in our real lives we can't jump back through a time pocket i've taught myself when i like imagine all the things that I goofed in high school that I wish I could go back and change. I realized that like daydreaming about time traveling back and advising my past self or imagining that I'll write a story about that is actually not necessarily healthy. It's maybe not a disaster if I'm doing it, but if you indulge those thoughts too much, it's basically not good. It's not something you should make a habit of. And yeah, I think I'm starting to repeat myself here, but um, if I was going to critique the story, it's just that, it's not necessarily doing anything wrong, but I think it is a little bit representative of that postmodern tendency to um, shy away from, yeah, endings. I think I'm going to, you know, respectfully disagree with with you there, like with regards to, you know, this specific story. Mm. If, you, if you, you know, look at what, you know, Hucho does and, you know, like, for you know what what he does when he's traveling back in time and and his motivations for it, like uh, actually you know Miss Chen you know uh, ask him you know are you hoping to travel back in time to relive the nostalgia because the present isn't as wonderful as your memories mm. like you know that is something that is brought up in, in the story but you know his actual motivations are you know uh, you know he's trying to help somebody else. He's trying to, you know, do something actively instead of just, you know, passively experiencing. He doesn't get another childhood. He, you know, he's not the one who, you know, gets to uh, continue a relationship with Tangbu. He's just, he's not the Nobita of the story. He's mm-hmm. the Doraemon of the story. And, you know, that means he has to, you know, he has to make a sacrifice for himself. We don't know, you know. It, it's open, as you said. You know what's going to happen to him. How you know how much he's going to you know 
face difficulties because he doesn't have an ID and you know, because he's a stranger out of time. Maybe maybe the turns out you know well for him, even. But he doesn't really you know like he goes back into his own past in a way, but he doesn't go back into his own childhood or he doesn't relieve his childhood. That's not his goal. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I've i never read this myself, but have you heard of a essay by Lucian called What Happens After Nora Walks Out? I have. I haven't read it, but, you know, I have heard of it. So it's based, it's based on, sorry, it's, uh, it's commentary on a play, which I've also not read or watched or seen. So <laughs> really talking out my ass here. But so there's a, a play by Henrik Ibsen. And from what I gather, he was huge in May 4th, uh, so early 20th century, progressive circles in China. I got, everyone was translate, not everyone. It was a done thing to read and discuss translations of Ibsen's plays or maybe see performances of them. And A Doll's House, from what I gather, it's about this family where the, the wife, the mother, the, the wife and the mother of the family is basically oppressed and mm-hmm. is miserable and then finally at the end of the play she walks out and I think this standard interpretation is that that's a kind of a triumphant moment that's her freeing herself from oppression yeah but Lucian's point is well hold on a minute uh what now what's she going to do society doesn't have pathways available uh for for a woman like that to get by at the time maybe in the 21st century, it's easy to forget that because it's you know much more viable to be on your own as a person or especially as a single woman now. But um, his point is, look, you really have to think these things through. I think he was making a pessimistic point that um, I'm not sure what it was exactly, but if you were to totally liberate um, women in China without laying the groundwork, it would be a similar situation. They would have no economic basis on which to build their lives. And I feel like you could make a similar um, commentary here that the story, on one hand, it doesn't, uh, what's the word? It doesn't kind of bash you over the head with exposition. It doesn't tell you, it doesn't try and close off like how our narrator found a happy life or he leaves it ambiguous. And amb- mm. ambiguity is good, usually I would say, but also it doesn't really look at like the material situation he's landed himself in like you might you might one prediction you could make is our our guy adult hucho is going to end up in the river himself because he's just created an impossible situation for himself maybe best case scenario he becomes an undocumented rural worker and is able dorimon style to keep an eye on his childhood self and tang lu but yeah I, I, i don't know i don't think i can take that argument any further but i just thought it'd be nice to bring up lu shun again I think that's the kind of like, you know, are you uh, like he is making that, you know, conscious choice that, you know, he is, it is kind of like the, you know, pattern of uh, self sacrificing, you know, heroes here and in you know, Flower of the Other Shore that he's, you know, he is making that choice to, you know, not care about what happens to him or he's going to, you know, he can, he's an adult, he can, you know, uh, he's, he'll try to manage manage somehow mm-hmm. uh, you know what happens to him is you know his responsibility but he's trying to set you know uh write that one thing that he knows is going to probably have the most you know most impact uh for another person you know without you know 
altruistically without you know care for his own you know without care for his own interests. So mm-hmm. yeah, and that kind of, that's kind of like you know where is the ambiguity, ambiguity is there that you know we don't know what's going to happen to him. We don't know how he's going to you know uh, get along, but we have a pretty good idea that Tang Lu and you know the younger version of Hu Cho are going to have a better life because of that sacrifice. I was just thinking, if I was to try and turn the story into a novel, what would I do? And I would push harder into the sci-fi. I would have more characters go through the pocket and create huge mix-ups in the timeline. I think that's how I would do it. But again, I'm trying to spell out something that is deliberately not spelled out. So maybe I, yeah. maybe that's a bad habit. Uh, just looking through the jumble of bullet points, I, I had sort of lined up for the interview. Uh, I see there's a couple of things about childhood that we've not necessarily dug into. So I mentioned Shaja and how sort of those long, long summers of childhood where time stretches are maybe worth comparing here. I thought also like that maybe not necessarily childhood, but emotion, melodrama is is a bit of a, a loaded word, but like emotion and tugging, tugging on the heartstrings, gentle characters. I mentioned how, I think that's a bit of a theme uh, in quite a lot of the sci-fi from you, you, that you can read at least in English translation from younger writers. Like one of my favorites is Chen Xiufan. Um, I guess he is a bit older than some of the younger writers, a few years older he at is, least. Yeah. Uh, he is not, he's born in, uh, in the 1980s. I don't recall the exact yeah. year. 1982 perhaps. That sounds right. Yeah. So yeah, like he's, he's often sort of named alongside these other writers but to me he stands out because he's his stories are often weird and dark and uncomfortable and maybe even problematic but if you compare that with Achua and um perhaps say slightly controversially a lot of the female writers um the stories are just as deep often but they're not they're not spiky and scary often in the same way um they're gentler is there anything you want to say about any of those things the childhood yeah. or use of emotions yeah uh, or it is often you know seen at least as a you know something that's coded masculine and feminine that you know yeah. female writers you know are writing these you know gentle you know emotional story stories you know so-called you know soft science fiction even and, though in reality it's you know it's yeah Machua is not a girl Machua yeah. is male <laughs> yeah and you know, and Jenji you know, I think he has this very, you know, cynical, cynical, gritty, you know, cyberpunkish stories, but he also has, you know, some, you know, more heartfelt, emotional, you know, stories as well. Mm-hmm. And even even Liu Tuxing has, you know, uh, a couple of stories like Union's Bubbles, for example, that's about, a, you know, a father-daughter relationship. But yeah, I think uh, one thing that I, uh, I did mention, you know, uh, yeah, young Linus, you know, real smart from the future, you know, oh, yeah. earlier on. Right. And there, yeah, I think there's, it's not dominant anyway, or it is not the dominant perspe- perspective anymore, obviously. And it's not the commercial big hitter either. Yeah, well, but but there is there is this, you know, uh, history of seeing science fiction specifically as children's literature in the, mm. you know, in the People's Republic of China. So a lot of, I would say, you know, Probably a lot of uh, current writers and readers first, you know, got in touch with science fiction. They first, you know, learned what it is through 
fiction specifically written for children, which may be the case for you know some fans and writers. Also, you know, in the Western you know uh, sphere or you know or the English speaking world or whatever, but with you know with in the Chinese context, it was you know for a long time officially enforced. You know, you know, science fiction was officially classified as being for children, which somehow, which somehow may you know still kind of manifest at least in those you know general stories that focus more on the you know point of view of children, you know more more on the emotion, you know childhood and so on. Yeah, I kind of wonder as well if it's also a product of the format because um, Yu Cixin is mostly known as a novel writer, but mm-hmm. most of the stories from younger writers I've read, probably all of them actually have been short stories. And yeah. I think it's this is, um what's the word? This is the conventional wisdom, but it's also my experience writing shorter and longer form fiction is um, you <laughs> novels have to be meaner or more tense <laughs> in a way because they need to sustain tension and drama for longer. Um, you can't get away with being unconventional for quite as long and still hold the reader's attention or have a story that makes sense. Whereas for something that's a few thousand words or even less, you can have, I think it doesn't need to be as highly strong, basically. Um, it can be just a sort of a slice, closer to a slice of life or experience without a villain or without really serious problems. But I think for the novel, if you have no serious problems in your novel after a hundred pages, then your novel has a serious problem because <laughs> it's going to be dull as dishwater. Um, yeah. So yeah, I kind of wonder if, if that's part of it, that um, uh, the writers are not so interested in having big dramatic problems. And in the short story, that's basically fine because it can still be interesting without a big dramatic problem. Although of course, in this story, that's not the case. We have, hmm. it's fairly long and it does have, a lot of drama and so social problems, women and girls being beaten, being the main one, but that's a product of poverty. So also poverty and um, it's it's not really dealt with directly, but inequality between urban China and rural China. You only yeah. really see one half of that, but it's 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 very important that the Doraemon uh, videos are not being beamed into the countryside. They're physical media, but it's being bought in the city and brought into the village. Yeah. I think that's interesting. Or rented, actually. Rented, even. right. Not even yeah. bought. Yeah. Yeah. So not even accumulated, but temp- a bit like we were saying, it's uh, the difference between media today where everything is permanently available online, streaming, or piracy. Um, yeah. Whereas in the past, it's beamed in and then it's gone. And a video rental is just a slightly, it's a beam that sticks around a bit longer, basically. Then you got to give it back. Um, I did want to mention another short story, basically just as a recommendation for readers. It's available in English. It's on a. It's not on Clark's World, like Farewell Doraemon and so many other translated Chinese sci-fi stories are. It's on future-sf.com, and it's called Through the Fog, A Distant World Appears. Sorry, A Distant Land Appears by Wanxiang Fengnian, the author is called. And it's, again, about real in fact, the social problem it is about is even more specific than Farewell Doraemon. Because in Dor- Farewell Doraemon, I guess there's abuse of women, beating of women specifically is a problem. 
and women in unhappy marriages. Uh, but otherwise, the problem is basically just poverty writ large, whereas a social phenomenon appears in um, uh, this one. It's about suicide, or it's, it features suicide by fertilizer. Um, I don't know if you've heard about this, but I think it was especially common with older Chinese people, but just left behind rural people in China in general. If, if their life was failing, if they couldn't provide for whoever they needed to provide for, be it their self or family members, you had this thing where large numbers of people were committing suicide by eating the fertilizer that they had ready access to. I can't... Pesticides. Pesticides, right. Maybe it's pesticides I'm thinking of. Yeah. I was actually uh, looking up uh, sort of related to this uh, for, you know, uh, from a paper. Mm. And at least in, you know, 2014, according to World Health Health Organization, I'm sorry, at least in 2014, according to World Health Organization stats, China was one of the few countries in the world where uh, women, you know, uh, uh, represent a larger portion of, you know, completed suicides than men. Oh, right. Yeah, which may be... Uh, one reason that has been proposed is that there, you know, especially in rural areas that are, you know, uh, overrepresented in uh, in these in these statistics, uh, there is this really, you know, ready access, uh, readily accessible, you know, pesticides, strong, you know, poisons that mm. mean that if you if you try to commit, you know, commit suicide, it's probably, you know, uh, going to if you it's try easier, to commit suicide, easier to do. Well, it's probably going to, you know, I don't want to say succeed, but, you know, you're probably going to die from it. Right, yeah, it's, right. It's a know, sure method. It, yeah. Right. And they, they have actually, uh, you know, in, in China, uh, you know, control of pesticides and, you know, similar chemicals has been, you know, uh, tightened, you know, probably because of this, you know, mm-hmm. so that, and of course, you know, I think in uh, in through the fog, a distant light appears. It's uh, I'm not sure if it's yep. that it is a su- suicide attempt or if it's just you know like uh, yeah. because that uh, you know character in question is is a child. So she might it's have an accident it accidentally. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, the first the first few lines in English translation are yellow is on your right. It's pesticide. It's not fertilizer. So yeah. I'm wrong. Um, uh, the first few lines are yellow is the breath of the dying on the seventh day after Dandan drank the paraquat, a pesticide that had recently become tragically popular for suicide attempts, as well as the cause of too many accidental ingestions by children. Her sin grew sallow and her breathing grew rapid and weak. So yeah, it's a, a, a kid has ingested it and that's been the accident. Yeah. I forget if it's implied or said directly, if the kid's mother was thinking about committing suicide, I think she may well have. Um, and it's it's either shown through the themes as a metaphor or directly in the story that this woman and her kids are all alone. Everyone's yeah. gone out to work in the cities, and that's yeah. and mother, sure, yeah. yeah. And mother has also you know gone you know gone got to the city and then has to come back because you know her child right. has you know just the pesticide. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so a lot of listeners probably already know this, but if you don't know, um, this is a big part of the relationship between the countryside and the city in China is uh, it's, there's there's a word I came out, a phrase, a phrase for this that I, I just bumped into in an essay I proofread 
but it's like circular circular migration so there are people from the countryside who go to the city forever to work but a much i, I believe a more common pattern is someone mem members or the whole or part of a rural family go out to work there they get access to the higher salary and maybe other city services but because their id their huko is linked to the countryside and not the city they can't really become a permanent resident of the city. Similar to how if you're a foreigner going to China, you have no path to citizenship, basically. You'll be on a work visa or some kind of visa forever. Um, but if you're a rural Chinese person, that's a much bigger deal because you yeah. depend much more on those services. So you'll have a situation where some people will stay in the countryside to hold on to those sorts of state or more rooted uh, fundamental services and things they need to live. But for money, for financial survival, or maybe some something closer to prosperity, they'll need the urban wages. So you have this like back and forth between the city and the countryside. And you, I guess you don't, you kind of see that in um, Very Well Dorimon, but it's played out, or I've, I've, it's played out a bit more, in a bit more detail in, in um, Through the Fog of Distant Land Appears. And you get this kind of sci-fi gothic horror picture of the countryside as like, abandoned and eerie and spooky and i think you do get that in farewell dariman as well like there's a lot of fog once you're outside the edge of town it's silent you're the only person like it's it's a, it's a funny one people have in their mind the image of china is a really crowded place but once you're in the countryside okay maybe there's more people in each village relative to like a village in say the uk but, you know, there are still huge empty spaces where it's just yeah. plants or maybe shrimps or ducks or something. Um, and, yeah, the use of the, the graveyard and I think night scenes or like dawn, sunset, I think they're used from what I remember in Fable Dorimon to quite good effect to paint a sort of eerie, otherworldly vision of the countryside. And yeah. I, I it works for me. I mean, I think that's not said that I remember about taking the train through the Chinese countryside is smog or you can't even tell is it smog or is it fog mm -hmm. but in any case the effect is sort of eerie and strange and yeah. in a way gives some kind of a art aesthetic um concrete concretization of the, the economic abandonment of those people you know yeah it, it is a sad situation and it's a mournful sort of landscape and you know, the, the, the poverty didn't create the fog, but they, you know, one sort of, what's the word? It creates sort of mental relationship between the two, at least it did for me. So, yeah, yeah. I think that's, I felt that in Farewell Dharamon. Yeah. Uh, one thing that in, uh, is specific to Farewell Dharamon from, you know, considering these two stories is that uh, much of it is from the perspective of a child. So, you know, to a child, you know, like small you know local things like you know uh like graveyards and you know things like that they are really really significant or like if you mm. if you you know have to, like if you if you go you know past the graveyard as an adult for day like it's just you know a place with you know gravestones on it some trees maybe you know perhaps a reminder yeah. of your mortality but you yeah. should be used but, to that yeah, by now yeah yeah but you know to a child it is a place with dead people on it it, it probably has ghosts because yeah and the, and the river you know is you know much bigger uh much more dangerous you know the uh, all of the you know 
it's kind of like like everything is bigger, not just you know in a physical sense, but also like in a mental sense, mm. because your your world is so restricted in space that you maybe focus more on you know very small details that you know an adult wouldn't be uh, wouldn't look at twice. Yeah, we I tried to convey that weird feeling when I talked about Radish um, Moyan's story where it's all about a kid's perception of the countryside. And I was like, yeah, this feels like what it felt being four years old, like not having filters to properly process the world. And from what I remember in Farewell Dorimon, some of the conversations between the kids, they just sort of throw out bizarre assertions uh, that show that their boundary between imagination and fantasy and fiction and just boring realities it's kind of there, but it hasn't, the boundary hasn't come all the way down or it's not properly solidified. And I was like, yeah, yeah that, that is how I talked as a kid where like, I would say things that I knew weren't real, but I didn't really think about that. I didn't have self-reflection to properly dismiss them. Yeah, uh, I don't think I have much more to extrapolate there. And I think we've been talking for about two hours, so I'm yeah. going to keep us moving on some miscellaneous questions. Uh, so miscellaneous question number one. Um, oh man, I had more, actually I had more general questions. So I'll, I'll throw out two quick questions, then we can go to mm-hmm. miscellaneous ones. Uh, quick question number one, which Chinese sci-fi do you like the most and why? So very generally speaking, uh, you know, Probably because I am like a student of Chinese culture, you know, I, you know and a researcher of, of it at the moment. I like stories that are in some way, you know, distinctly Chinese, quote unquote, like that are rooted in you know, Chinese culture and society, but that also do something new or unexpected with that. Mm. Uh, I you know, this, the, the stories that I take part in translating a uh, hundred ghosts by tonight and the Mount ghost are both like that in my view uh waist tide and on new river by the same authors also then there's you know Hansong submarines uh john runs the snow the snow young and but choose you know what has passed uh, what has passed showing kind of like appear like they all you know they like they all kind of give me that you know Captain America, you know, gif, uh, you know, I understood that reference feeling, <laughs> but, then yeah. they, but there's also, you know, they're like, they're playing with these references and they're, you know, like they're playing with these cultural elements, often very interesting science fictional ways, you know, mm-hmm. which brings us back to, you know, the idea of generic hybridity, of course. Yeah. yeah, that's generally the kind of thing that, you know, I'm my most attracted to yeah i for me it's very similar um at least that that angle is very similar it's i think it is interesting to pick apart those different ways of referencing something specifically chinese because you could have something that points to traditional chinese culture um Mm -hmm. like old fiction like xiaoja's hundred ghost prey tonight um something that points to economic realities um like Hundreds Ghost Parade Tonight does do that because it's like mm-hmm. a sort of a riff on a, one of those, what is it, Laojia, the old street tourism sort of phenomenon yeah. or, or the bulldozing of real old houses. Um, but I'm thinking more of like a story that 
doesn't reach into like cultural traditions like farewell Doraemon, traditional Chinese culture, one might argue is just not in this story. Yeah. In a way, kind of, only kind of, it could be any poor rural country. Not not really, really, but like it doesn't hinge on like uh Chinese traditional weddings or people having being familiar with Sun Wukong or something. Yeah. Uh, that history doesn't need to be there for the story to work. Um, and then you have stories which are riffing on actual Chinese history, like Snows of Jinyang. Um, that's from a real historical event um, rather than like traditional culture. Um, I think those are the, yeah, those are the, the different categories I'd break it into. And for me, the ones I like the most are ones like this that are about phenomenons in the real society. Mm-hmm. Interests me more than riffs on ancient Chinese history or the ancient culture. I think I do like the stuff that riffs on more modern history, like um, what has what has Paschal and Kinder Light appear. Again, maybe just for the um, the Chris Evans telling you he understood the references. Yep. What has passed is amazing for that. Uh, the Boshi Lai references. That's a very good one in that story. Um, did I have something else to say there? Probably not. I'll just keep us moving. Yeah. Um, yeah. So ne- next one, uh, the proliferation of Chinese sci-fi in, as it is in Chinese, but in translation as well. So I, I don't know. Maybe we could look at Finnish and English here. It seems to me that although the big buzz around things like Three Body or the books from Ken Leo, that's fading. But the ongoing inclusion of translated Chinese sci-fi into sci-fi available in English, be it on websites, stories making into magazines, or be it bookshelves or the Kindle store or something, that seems to be proliferating and not stopping. So like Tor in America is still publishing these this generation of Chinese writers um Clark's world is putting out a book with more short stories uh Amazon Crossing is going to bring out a Han Song trilogy I'm so hyped for that that's I'm really excited about reading those um so it's not ending um and what about so to, to my mind the buzz is gone but a, a niche has been found um in English anyway what do you think about that, both in English and Finnish translation? So in English, I would say that we're at the stage where where you can, you know, like you can have anthologies of Chinese science fiction, mm. like much in the way you can have like, you know, uh, you know, the best zombie stories or, you know, the best cyberpunk or, you know, right. like theme and style and subgenre uh, because Chinese sci-fi is seen as interesting in itself. People are going to read because it is, you know, Chinese and because it is sci-fi. Even yeah. though the stories often don't have, you know, anything other in common. And if I can, if I can interrupt you briefly and be annoying, the first book that is organized around some kind of a theme has come out, or is a way to come out. It's um, the way spring arrives. Right. So the yeah. stories aren't a theme. It's about the identity of the authors and translators. They're all women yeah. or non-binary. Yeah, so that's just, that's more than half of the world population is the theme. Uh, well, more than half of the Chinese 
population is the theme but you're right you could there's enough stuff out there on clark's world alone that you could drill down into like like you said time travel stories or something that doesn't yeah. seem impossible yeah so uh, for you know uh, for the long long run it is a good sign that there are like books like uh you know books by authors besides uh the other series like you know west tide a summer beyond your reach you know han songs you know trilogy that you know kind of like are building up name recognition for other authors, you know, apart from the most obvious one that everybody has heard uh, heard, heard about. Uh, we'll, I didn't have a crystal ball, so I know what how long that is going to last. You know what's going to happen uh, if and you know, when and if the Netflix adaptation of Triple oh, yeah. comes along. Yeah, oh my God, that's yeah. that. I think it's going to happen. They've announced so much of the cast for the Netflix version. Yeah. It's the crazy thing though, speaking of all those versions of Doraemon, we're going to have two, three bodies. So it's going to be a Chinese film and a Netflix series, I think. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. And then, well, if you compare all of this to the Finnish situation, we're not there yet. Like the you know, books in print of Chinese science fiction are, you know, uh, the three-body problem trilogy. Uh, Ball lightning is coming out, I think, this fall, and then there's you know waste tide, uh, and you know apart from that, a couple of you know short stories in magazines, two of which you know I have uh, translated or been a co-translator of. Uh, I think one was translated that by Rano Sainio, who is you know the translator of uh, all of, you know, the aforementioned book format stories. Yeah, friend of the pod. Yeah, and then uh, there was one uh, several years ago. Uh, Tenjiu Fans, the fish of Lijiang, was uh, the Tenjiu Fans, the fish of Lijiang, was uh, translated from English in a fanzine that uh, where the issue in question is you know currently out of print. So that's the stage we're at. We don't have you know we don't have invisible planets. I I don't know. I'm not sure if one is you know going to come out anytime soon. Uh, if there are any you know Finnish publishers listening, please contact me. I would like to help. Yeah, we're looking but, for know, the, the Finnish Atra anthology, please. Yeah, but yeah, we're uh, like people who know about science fiction know that you know Chinese sci-fi is a thing. I think you know the books that have been translated are doing rather well but since we're such a small country with so many so so, so few speakers of Finnish uh it is they are like for me the whole you know idea of having like science fiction publishing scheme uh, scene uh that is you know market-based that is running you know on on the idea that people are making profit by publishing books uh, for for this kind of so-called niche niche audiences is very hard to grasp because you know so much of the Finnish science fiction scene, with the you know some major publishers are of course you know publishing sci-fi and fantasy, but like the anything that's seen as somehow niche or alternative is you know running 
uh, on on Turberg, more or less. So yeah, very 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 different situations, obviously. Yeah, I've just um, popped onto the Finland Wikipedia page to look at the population. It's very similar to Scotland, actually, five point five million. Yeah, and yet you know, in Scotland, we're an English-speaking country essentially. Yeah. So it's not even comparable. And I don't, I'm sure you must have this. I've definitely mentioned this on the show before. Do you ever look at the population of a Chinese city and then stack it against Finland's population and be like, damn? Yeah, there are. I think there's like one uh, Finnish book about uh, Finland, uh, uh, sorry, Finnish book about China. I don't remember which one, which has like a map of, you know, uh, like all the cities in China that are bigger than Finland or have that, or that have more people. So yeah, it's you know, like one quarter of, of Shanghai, you know, <laughs> most of Hong Kong, I think, but you know, still. Yeah. Let me see. Shuhui uh, district, Shanghai. I'm waiting to see what the population of one district in Shanghai is. Oh, it would help if I spelt district, right? Do, 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 do. Uh, where's Wikipedia when you need it? Hang on, bear with me. Do, 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 do. Shuhui District. Okay, Shuhui District is 982,000, So Finland wins at least for that district of Shanghai. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, still, you know, what was it, 900,000? So it's bigger, it's bigger than Helsinki. Right, 982,000. So yeah. how many Helsinkis is that? Uh, let's see, I think Helsinki is somewhere, somewhere around, if you count just the city of Helsinki, it's uh, half a million. Okay. If you count the whole you know, capital region, it's closer to a million. So I think in that case, capital capital region of Finland may, may win, but yeah. that's you know several you know cities. And this is one little district yeah. of, of one city. So yeah, it's crazy. Um I should mention, so I, we we just mentioned Rano Sainio there, friend of the pod, who came on uh, to talk about Gulfay's The Invisibility Cloak, along with his uh, Gulfay's Turkish translator, Kira Fidan. So that reminded me, Kara Healy, who you mentioned, uh, yeah. has also been on this show. She was on to talk about Taiwanese, a Taiwanese science fiction novel whose name I should remember. That's terrible. Oh, The Man with the Compound Eyes. So if, if listeners want to hear what Kara sounds like and what she's got to say, well, Go listen, go listen to that episode, The Man with Their Compound Eyes. Um, I'll keep us moving onto those miscellaneous questions I promised a minute ago. So a Chinese word of the day uh, that you would pair with Farewell Doramon. Do you, do you have one? Yes, I do. Uh, I was really tempted to go with dream because that's a, phrase, you know, a word that actually is repeated in the story a lot. But mm. then I came up with Donghua. Uh, or cartoon. All right. Yeah, I, I have actually. Uh, this is. Uh, I have a you know a logic, uh, or sorry, I'll start again. Mm -hmm. So if so if we break down you know this word, it literally means like moving picture, you know, or moving painting, 
which, which is different from you know the Chinese word for movies you know that is much commonly used. That's Dianying, Dianying, or, electric yeah. shadow, right? Yeah. So that's kind of like electric shadow kind of like sounds like uh, like a like an illusion of something or imitation of you know reality. Whereas Donghua is you know it's a piece of art brought to life, like you know it is animated. Mm. Uh, just you know just like in my view, uh, Archer's you know story. Uh, which is very moving, a little pun there, you know, also nice. brings to life, you know, the experiences of its main characters. So, you know, it's like, it's all about, you know, uh, movement and, you know, things that move people and, you know, bringing things, you know, bringing ideas and, you know, stories to life. Perfect. Which is, Perfect. you know, something that, you know, cartoons also can do. Yeah, absolutely. And again, to reiterate, I'm heartbroken that Doraemon didn't jump out of the screen <laughs> and the postmodernity didn't get dragged to the, the next level. But, oh, well, you can't always get what you, what you want in life. Um, yeah. I've, I've um, picked a word of the day of my own, which I don't always do, but okay. I, I wanted to do it for this one. Um, you might want... You, I think I think I've I know how to say this one correctly, but uh Ho, so like the eighth post-80s generation. Is that how we mm. say that? I think is it, it is, yeah. Basha Nian Ho, maybe? I don't know. I'm just looking at the Bai Bai Baidu page. I should know how to say this, but yeah. The post and the, so if I say Basha Ho eight after 80s, that means the post-80s generation. So that means People born in the nineties, right? Uh, no, that means people people uh, people born uh, after nineteen eighty. Aha, so, right. So we want the Joshua, the nineties, post nineties. Okay, good, <laughs> good thing I asked. Right, uh, I am gonna I'm gonna cheat. I'm gonna start again, and I'm gonna cover up my mistake. Right. So uh, I've actually picked uh, a word as well because this is one I didn't really properly learn in fact i'm only properly learning it today but uh, i never even really saw or remembered the character for this whilst i lived in china despite coming across the term in english so the term is the post 90s generation uh and this would be if i've got it right joshua ho so like ho is like i think is that after or behind so like the post everyone born at in the 90s after 1990 and we we talked about this in the context of um uh, like generations in general and maybe writers but like I know this is used for a lot of waves of artists like I know this is used for cinema and stuff right mm-hmm. yeah I think so too yeah yeah post 90s generation so not much to say there just I thought it would be good to pop down for anyone listening like myself who's heard this thing in English but didn't really learn it in Chinese so I, I popped it down there okay next one Oh, I've just realized I haven't thought of my own answer for this question. Now I'm in trouble. Uh, but <laughs> for you, if you could pair any piece of music with Farewell Doraemon, what would it be? Uh, so uh, a bit of background, like, you know, uh, I think it has uh, been made clear that I didn't grow up with Doraemon, like, you know, most Europeans, you know, probably. Yeah, I never, I never asked that, did I? What your first contact yeah. with Doraemon was? 
Yeah, I, I don't remember, but it, it was as an adult, you know, something right. like, you know, watching, you know, watching anime or reading about anime and you know, discovering that there is this kind of thing. But I did grow up with the Boomings, which is, <sighs> yeah, which is very, very Finnish. Right. Well, well, you know, I should say, you know, the books are by Finnish authors, uh, by Finnish author, and so are the comics. But the anime is, of course, or was made in Japan. Uh, I grew up with the, like the 19... Interesting. Uh, yeah, the 1990, 90s you know, version, which is you know, the newer one that Tuve Anson was uh, more satisfied with than you know, the previous attempts. Hmm. Uh, and so, like, you know, I grew up with that, like, basically every, everyone in my generation in Finland, obviously. It's, you know, with the movies are you know, similarly omnipresent here as, you know, uh, as Doraemon is in China and, and in Japan. So the song I picked uh, is by the Swedish uh, progressive rock band Ritual uh, from their 2003 album Think Like a Mountain, and it's called Moomin Took My Head. Moomin Took My Head. Okay. Yeah. I'm in trouble. Which is uh, about basically the experience of you know watching movements as a child. How you know you rush home from school, you know then you kind of like uh, how it says, says in this song, you your school days are just beginning when you learn so many things from watching this you know particular cartoon series and how uh, you know it, it, it is just you know so how captivating it, it is. Maybe to an almost dangerous extent, like mm. the like the chorus says that I'm in trouble, deep deep trouble. Moomin took my head, and I was just about to wake up. <laughs> and that's very you know similar to how Doraemon you know appears in this story. That it's it is something that has such a lasting impact on you. It, it may even you know change your life because you're experiencing it as you know in a, such a young age. And it is something, you know, that kind of like hits you, you know, right where it matters. Well, sorry, what was the name of the band? Uh, Ritual. Ritual. Yeah. Okay. Women Took My Head by Ritual. Okay. I was going to comment there that obsessing over fiction is something me and you still do. Yeah. But so maybe it can be easy to forget that for an awful lot of people, the intense relationship they maybe had with cartoons or with stories in whatever form they took, could be an audio cassette or a video game as a kid. Plenty of people, I, I think, move away from that in their adult life. Mm. They maybe do watch TV shows, but maybe the TV shows they develop the strongest relationship with are like reality TV shows, like talent shows. Uh, so like in the UK, maybe I think X Factor is gone. I'm, I really don't keep up with that stuff, but like these performance shows, like Britain's Got Talent is the big one here, I think, or like Love Island, these yeah. reality shows that I would not touch with a barge pole, but I don't know if they mean a lot to people, but those are what 
capture the imagination of many people. And what they lack is, well, I suppose they do, they do create a kind of fantasy world, but it's not a fictional fantasy world. Um, arguably, it makes more sense to obsess over them because there's something real and concrete there that there isn't with the Moomins or with Doraemon. But as children, I think we all go through this. I remember as a kid in my primary school playground, the Star Wars prequels had come out. It's like the Phantom Menace was the one where I was, I was like only six or something when that came out. I was very young. And I remember taking part in like pretend uh, lightsaber fights with my friends that got rather emotionally intense or possibly a bit violent when like, okay, your, your lightsaber isn't visible in pretend, but your little fist that's holding it could be viciously rammed into your friend's stomach to get Almost the track. Yeah, to, to get the, um, the pommel strike, to get the edge in your imaginary game. Because as a kid, although you know it's not real, yeah. the boundary isn't as solid. So yeah, um, I think that's a good choice. Uh, my choice, as I frantically scroll through my music library looking for something that would be somewhat relevant, is uh, Roads by Portishead. Do you know that one? I don't. Right, so it's, a, it's from the 90s, I think. Uh, yeah, 94, the year after I was born. They're a British trip-hop band. Maybe appropriate, this genre that has a weird, nostalgic, sometimes eerie f- feel. It's like sort of drawing on the hip-hop tendency of like using samples and mixture of samples and instrumentation, but um, for a totally different vibe. Uh, Portishead, um, Portishead have a mourn- songs have a sort of mournful, strange feel to them. And Rhodes is a very sort of melancholy, haunting song. Can't anybody see? We've got a war to fight. Never find our way. Regardless of what they say. it's not actually about roads like i don't think roads come up in the lyrics but you sort of imagine someone driving around a sad abandoned road i'm just gonna look up the lyrics yeah so she says never find our way regardless of what they say how can it feel this wrong from this moment how can it feel this wrong and that kind of reminds me of the part of the story that happens in the present um especially when not right away once Hucho gets back, but like as he's back, he's settled in and he's observing what's happened with the, 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 the village and it mirrors his own life. Everything has just become fucked, uh, basically. His life, I think it's kind of not surprising that he's willing to sort of give up on his life and go back to the past because his life is gone, basically. He could probably pick himself up, but as it stands, like... He's been unable to do anything an adult's supposed to do. Have a career, have a relationship, pay his rent, and he's only getting older, of course. Uh, then he goes back home and no one has basically succeeded in managing their life. Everyone's got it wrong. Everyone's stuck in poverty. No one's really happy. His parents seem to be doing okay, but 
the world is a bad <laughs> is a bad place in the story basically no no one's done well and the yeah the escape for him is to travel travel in time because everything is that wrong and i'm not saying that i have horrible depression or that this is how i feel about the world but i've had moments where it's like i look around me at what's happening in the news i think a lot of people have felt this for 6 years plus um maybe it's just part of being an adult i don't know but i i remember thinking around 2008 after the financial crash okay this is a tipping point and people are going to realize that the thing i believe in needs to be done to fix the world and here we are 14 years later if i'm doing my maths right and that is absolutely not what has happened every opportunity to course correct away from hardcore capitalism has basically been neglected and we're just sinking further into the the shit and then so when something goes wrong in your own life or in the lives of people that you care about it's easy to sort of go down this rabbit hole of everything is absolutely fucked the world's a horror show oh and look the graveyard is just outside of town and it's only getting bigger and that's not really the I don't know, that's not what you're supposed to take away from the story, but it's part of the mood for some of it. It's yeah. not necessarily pessimism, but this kind of sad, mournful dreariness that is probably being projected from Hucho's head into the world around him. But simultaneously, like that's probably how it is for a lot of people in the countryside, that yeah. all they've got to hang on to is the kind of bittersweet feeling melancholy can sometimes give you which can be a weird comfort, not comfort. So yeah, I managed to talk about that song I just pulled out of my ass two minutes ago for quite a while. So I think mission accomplished. <laughs> okay, we're, we're about to move on to our closing questions, further reading questions. Uh, my, question is, my question is written if our listeners want more like this book. It's not actually a book. It's a short story published on the web. You can't read this one in print. But regardless, if listeners want more like this in book form, or in short story form, or any other form, where would you point them? So we've al already talked about uh, Flower of the Other Shore, uh, mm -hmm. you know, also by Atue, and Xiaojia's new collection, Somewhere Beyond Your Reach. But I would also like to mention another story by Atue, uh, which is called An Account of the Sky Whales, uh, which okay. also features this kind of like, you know, sensitive you know, male protagonist, you know, who is motivated by... Uh, you know his love for a female character. I think mm. it, it's at you know at the start of you know at the start of the story, his like ex girlfriend. I think maybe or maybe maybe she was a current girl, but girlfriend. But, any, but anyway, she has passed, and he is trying to you know uh, you know go 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 scatter her ashes. Oh right. And the conceit of the story is that it takes place in speak. It takes place in space and there are you know whales that can travel you know through space and that have you know anti-gravity properties and you know the protagonist is going to scatter you know the ashes among, among those whales and it's it is a similar a very very you know moving story a lot more fantastic than, than this one but you know if you liked you know Farva Doramon you should probably check that one out. That is f interesting that there's a story which has giant space whales. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's a surprisingly common trope. 
like there are <laughs> like there are you know space whales you know well yeah, it is you know it comes from probably from the idea that you know, space is like an ocean so there must mm. be whales right yeah, yeah. I, I was gonna bring up a band that I got into as a teenager and I, I still listen to occasionally they seem to still be going I don't know if you've heard of them they're French they're a death metal band called Gojira doesn't ring a bell uh, they have an album called From Mars to Sirius which has this like white creamy it's this beautiful white creamy color it has a great big whale on it and there's a track on it called Flying Whales yeah and I think they have they have other albums that like feature the idea of, of whales it's this strangest thing. Uh, there's, there was even a Facebook group called, what was it, Gojira Whale Posting or something, which is all about their fixation on whales. And if, if there's like one or two, there's another, um, I think an American band called like Giant Squid or something, yeah. drawing on some of the Herman, Herman Melville like cultural um, heritage. But I'm just looking up right now an article that tries, they, where someone interviewed them about like why they're so whale obsessed. He says, I want to reach the, the, the lyricist explained that he wanted to reach the whales. So there's, yeah, they live in the ocean. We can't reach them in the ocean. Space isn't so different. So yeah, space is an ocean. I'm not going to yeah. try and read, read the other, the whole article, but yeah, flying whales, interesting concept. Kind of makes me think along the same lines as uh, flying pirates. That seems <laughs> to be something that pops up a lot. Sky pirates. Yeah. Uh, that's probably a topic for another episode though. My, my further reading book is not Chinese it is in fact English um, as in from the country England it's but it does have a little bit of a East Asia connection it's by uh, David Mitchell the author did Cloud Atlas who uh, he lived in Japan for a while his wife's Japanese and Japanese and I think here and there Chinese stuff does pop up in his stories I think he's been mentioned on the show before but this book Black Swan Green is totally uh, domestic and I, the reason I say it's English and not British is it, it's very English. It's about his childhood, basically. So like his stories, uh, his, his books rather, sorry, they often do like a fragmented postmodern structure. Uh, Cloud Atlas and a couple other ones have like each chapter follows a different character. But Black Swan Green is a, has a very conventional, it's just a conventional novel structure about a boy following a boy for like a year of his life or a portion of a year of his life and the difficult stuff he has to deal with in his town, his friends and his coming of age struggles. And you do get the sense reading it, or at least I got the sense reading it. This is just David Mitchell revisiting a lot of the shit he had to, you know, we all go through, I think lots of bullshit as, t- as teenagers, whether we're boys or girls or men or women. Uh, and I think this was him putting into a story, a lot of the crap because um, there's the bad treatment he received from other kids, from adults, but also a lot of the kind of small, small town, small mindedness is there, but also sort of the crazy adventures you can get up to in a small town, be it running between gardens or like the the woods and stuff. So it's a, it's a fun read, a bit stressful at times because uh, of the, the, the misery that is there in that town. So which is something in common with Farewell Dorimon, except Farewell Dorimon, it's misery being produced by poverty. But in uh, Black Swan Green, it is that very refined flavor of upper middle class, comfortable English misery. Uh, <laughs> um, which comfortable although, English misery sounds yeah. like it. It could be a could be a bad, bad name. It's, it's that's Pink Floyd, right? <laughs> 
Um, although I'm not English, but definitely middle class uh, angst, I, I definitely felt growing up in Scotland. I guess it's not it's not that different, really. Am I? Was there anything else I was gonna? Yeah, I I was gonna mention as well. Just a fun nugget of info. All of David Mitchell's novels join up in this wider continuity, and in this novel, it's done very subtly. There is one character who pops up in a novel he wrote like ten years later, or something crazy. So it is linked to the wider continuity. He's he's one of those authors. <laughs> yeah, he's. Uh, I'm, not say, I'm not saying that uh, I have I haven't read read his work. I you know uh, yeah. I'll probably get to Cloud Cloud Atlas at some point, but you know he's one of those authors. He's just Steve, in Stephen King's camp. Yeah, linking up the continuity. Yeah, although I I, I like the way he does it. Um, yeah. I like how in some of the novels. Like he did one called The Bone Clocks, which I think really leaned into that. Uh, but in this one, it's totally subtle. Um, yeah. And like I said, I think it didn't, it wasn't revealed that it had any links until he wrote yeah. that character into a later novel. Um, so it kind of stands out in his in his writings uh, as being a little bit different. But as like a, a, a revisit, to a more conventional literary way of revisiting and closing off your childhood it's it's a good book i think yeah um and it's quite long so it's like a world you can sort of get lost in uh right okay enough enough the last question now uh what we're reading what are you reading just now arrow uh so unsurprisingly i'm working my way through both synopticon and oh, yeah. new voices in chinese uh, science fiction for very uh, obvious reasons um i'm also uh, reading Huali's uh, new uh, academic book, uh, science, uh, Chinese science fiction during the post-Mao cultural thaw, which is all about you know the uh, late seventies, uh, you know early 1980s phase of science fiction of you know Ye Liye and you know those authors and the kind of like the environment of publishing and media that they were working in in things not strictly related to. Uh, my research, I'm also reading an anthology of Russian comics uh, translated into Finnish. So it's, it seems it's mostly, uh, it mostly if not wholly, you know, superheroes, but it's kind of interesting to see, you know, how they, uh, they, they mentioned in the introduction that, you know, there are like clear influences from like Marvel and mm. you know, American superheroes. And, you know, first story is drawing a manga style. But they're, you know, of course, you know, with Russian characteristics. Yeah, I don't know if I've consumed any Russian pop culture in my life. Mm. Uh, yeah, I don't. Mm, no, well, I have, but it's it's not it's not pop culture. Um, I've seen maybe one or two. Yeah, no, no. I yeah. Now I think of it, so I've seen some old Soviet like Sergei Eisenstein films, but I've read I've read Roadside Picnic, and I've seen stalker and i've read master and margarita and i read Dostoevsky, but like actual popular mass culture from russia i wouldn't even know where to find it in english you know yeah uh, i think that's uh, one of the things that uh, is a bit different in finland uh, is that because you know our proximity to russia it's not like we, we don't you know it's not like we have a lot of contemporary you know russian pop culture that much, it, you know, like there's no 
you know, there's no Russian pop on the top 40 list or anything like that. But I do have, I think I and most of my generation has, you know, some, uh, uh, you know, contact on that front from things like, uh, like the books of Edward Uspensky, uh, who wrote, you know, this, uh, like, uh, some of these very famous children's books about, you know, that one is called, one series is called, you know, Uncle Fedya, his dog and his cat, that I was very into as a child. Nice. Uh, which is basically, you know, it's like about the countryside in, uh, it, it starts in some Soviet, Soviet times, but there's a lot of later books. Like one of them is about, it, the, it takes place in this you know, small village called Prostokwashina. That's like a uh, sort of like, it's a bit of a satire on, uh, or at least the first books kind of a bit of satire on, you know, the Soviet system. And life during that, but then there's like later books where they, you know, the village of Prostokostri, you know, you know, gets internet. <laughs> yeah. Right. But yeah. But yeah, so that, that's like something that's also a part of my childhood and for a lot of, you know, Finnish people my age as well. Uh, there's a, there's also, I would like, uh, just came to mind to mention that one of his, uh, it, one of Uspenski's creations is called Jeburashka, which is this kind of like big eyed, you know, uh, big, uh, very cute, you know, animal of some kind. Uh, and, you know, he's friends with a crew called Gina and, you know, has all, all kinds of adventures. And for some reason, he's very popular in Japan, apparently. Uh. <laughs> to bring it all back to, you know, the global, you know, pop culture and cartoons and, you know, childhood memories and how, how they travel around the world. Hmm. Yeah, I realized there was a thing I meant to say, and then our conversation kept going, and it fell by the wayside. But um, we were talking about how Western influences show up in different Chinese sci-fi in different ways, um, and how it doesn't exist in a vacuum. Yeah. But a Ferba Doraemon is representative of another sort of trend that you can. I think it's. I think it's a bit less visible in. Chinese sci-fi but still there is Japanese influences um yeah like in so we have obviously the Japanese cartoons showing up as as actual physical media in this story but like um the three-body fan novel has what is it it has like characters appearing as anime girls or something ridiculous like that Chinese nerd culture um there I'm yeah there's definitely some Japanese influences in Waste Tide in some of yeah. the some of the stuff like a mecha machine yeah um yeah there is uh in I think I think Liu Tuzin mentions uh the legend of of the galactic heroes I think it is by name in the dark forest is that a, so, yeah. is that a kid's show or something or yeah, it's uh it's how does it I think it's like prose fiction Japanese probably right. has been adapted into anime okay at some point yeah well but yeah and three body you've yeah. also got a Japanese tea ceremony that happens yeah. briefly with the what is it Sofon the robot yeah and you know the whole Sofon name is you know it's a very it is a very complicated pun on you know how like Japanese women's names sound like to uh Chinese you know speakers ah. because mm. of the like the uh like in Chinese, you know, sofon has the tzu, you know, particle, like, you know, child. But in Japanese, that's very common in female names. It's like ko, oh. like any ko, and, you know, 
Mako and so on. So that's why, you know, when you get the character named Sofon, you know, she's a Japanese woman, you know. And that's something, if you're just reading Kendo's translation, you'd never, he doesn't, didn't write the the one page length footnote for that one. Also, I realized we're supposed to have finished, but I think it's (laughs) worth saying Kendo is one of the two translators on on this story. And the other one is Emily Jin, both of whom have been on, been on the show. And this, when I tweeted, you might've seen this error. When I, I tweeted, I was going to be doing this story. Emily replied saying, oh my goodness, that was translated by baby me. And this thing only came out four years ago. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think she's like a year or two younger than me. So 29, take away one or two, take away another four. Yeah, she would have been pretty young. Time flies. Yeah. Time really does fly. And that's that's probably where I'll end it. Um, so just, yeah. Eero, thank you for talking to me about this story. Thanks for suggesting this story. This one was your idea. Yeah. And it was a real, a real pleasure to read because... I knew that there was so many stories, although I've, I've read just about all the Chinese sci-fi you can get in print, minus a couple of these new books that are coming out. I'd only read, I'd only seen the tip of the iceberg, I think, out of all the stories that are up on Clark's world. There's a huge number of them. Yeah. And I never kind of bothered to sit down and read them all because you'd have to read them on a device and I'm, I get distracted. So thank you, thank you for for bring, pulling this one out of the Clark's world uh, bag of wonders because it was it was fun. My pleasure. It was it was really great to be here. The, those of the listeners who are coming to Espo, the FinCon, you may probably hear uh, you may hear what kind of ideas I'm you know able I'm able to pull together from this, and uh, whether the whether the end result will make it any kind of sense. But it was really inspiring to talk with you about, about all of this. You know threads mm. and if you're a listener and you want to uh, share some thoughts you can do that with myself or or Eero Eero you're on Twitter um, yeah as at Infamous Snake yeah at Infamous Snake and all the links for talking to, to me or other listeners of the show are in the show notes so yeah thank you one more time and I will hit stop on the record alright we've reached the end of the show so as is customary, another really big thank you to Aero for coming on. I enjoyed that conversation very much, and I hope some of it trickles through into his talk that he'll be doing. That would be fantastic. Uh, I am not going to labor the plugs for too long, but I am going to plug the show's Patreon. So if you want to support the show, Patreon is uh, one of many ways, but I would say the best way to do it because you'll get something in return, uh, access to bonus episodes. So there is queued for July 8th as well. There's going to be two episodes coming out before this one, but queued for July 8th. There's my preliminary thoughts on this story. So I was just sort of going through some notes uh, about what I thought about Farewell Doraemon solo uh, a while before I spoke to Aero. So that is up there. And then coming out later in July, uh, there's something a little bit more out there that I did. It's uh, I had attempt an attempt at comparing... Uh, the three-body problem with H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, because I felt there was something to be said there. So those will be coming out in July 2022. Uh, I've got a, st- a whole string of episodes queued up. I always make more, uh, and you can sign up for that for just from one US dollar a month. I, I Of course, there, there's social media if you want to get in touch, um, give any feedback on the episode. All the links for that in the show notes. That is all I will say on the matter this time. So, Zai Jian. <laughs>